many of you watched three million pound coke gang courier with william garnier which got 150k views it was on the in the early stage of the podcasting we were doing that one went up and william was a courier today we have the mr big from the courier ring military trained even had an exit strategy but also these days is an activist for assisting military veterans so doing great work we like to have a story arc that ends with some activism and a positive social message on this channel it's not about the glorification of big coke smuggling gangs <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming on rich no worries Sean. did you watch the podcast with william i did yeah it was really interesting you know because i'd not seen william or spoken to him since the day of the sentencing so it was great to see him again and he was looking well um and it's great to hear his his story because at the time during uh when you're on remand it's really hard to sort of like take on board what's going on in your lives. You kind of, you're in that fishbowl and you're kind of all trying to figure out what's going on. And to see Will's actual version of events and, and how it came about for him was really good to see. And it was quite healing to think, yeah, we've all been through it in some way or another. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, you go into shock, don't you, when you're like first arrested and ad adapt into the various stages of incarceration of the court system. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So how's William doing now that I'm sure people are watching? I'll put the link in the description box to that one. Probably wondering how on earth he's doing these days. Well, as far as I know, he's doing well. Um, I think with anyone, with with the various restrictions we've got, you know, it's it's hard for anyone to try and have some sort of normality and work. And the same as with a conviction bolted onto that, it's not easy. Um I think he's working day by day. Same as myself. You know, you just you just focus on what you've got yeah. and make the best of it. So yeah, I think he's doing okay. So when these conspiracies, the indictments come down, the prosecutors have like an order of seniority and you're at the top of this conspiracy. Yes, you had two conspiracies. Okay. So you've got two operations. Op Berlin, or Op Berlin, which was um with William and his co defendants. Op Kestrel, which is myself and my co-defendants. Now, I was top of the indictment on Op Kestrel, which was a Bristol-based conspiracy, which is being supplied by the Op Berlin conspiracy, which is linked with William and his co-defendants. And it links into Serbians as well at some point. Yeah, which I was completely unaware of at the time. Yeah. Um, so when I was first arrested in April 2011, we already knew it was going to be coming on top. We already knew that there was going to be some arrests. And when I was arrested and taken for interviewing, we were given a list of names of people which have also been arrested, which you're unaware of at the time. You just don't know how many doors have gone through. And all the names on there, I recognized. I thought, well, that makes sense. That's that's so-and-so. Yeah, I think, oh, I'm, I'm really in trouble here because they've got all the right people that I've been dealing with. I thought... <laughs> They're probably sat three feet away having the same grilling. Um, and that was the first arrest. And then, you know, you, I was luckily released and bailed. And I was getting on with daily business. And then about two months later, 
another set of police came through my door uh, and introduced themselves as uh, Gloucestershire soccer. We're arresting you for conspiracy to supply cocaine. I thought, no, mate, you've done this already. It's some kind of mistake. I said, no, no, we're doing you again. I said, oh. And I realized at the time this was linked with uh, Williams firm and so on. So they took me into Gloucester and then they listed, produced a list of names on this one. And I thought, I don't recognize some of these names. And they look, they don't look English. And I thought then, and it came about that these names were Serbian. And I thought, where the hell are they getting this stuff from? So that kind of changed the ball game slightly because I thought it was a really good supply source. And now I know why, because they're pretty reliable through some bad times. I'm not going to condone that, but I thought <laughs> right now it makes sense yeah. <laughs> why we managed to do so well. So yeah, things changed and I didn't recognize half the names, mainly because when you're doing that, you, you don't use people's full names on the phone. You refer to them as mate or buddy or pal. And when you're seeing people's phone and trying to figure out, well, who's that? Who's this? I didn't even recognize William's name because I knew him as something else. Yeah. You know, so yeah, that that one for myself, I was the only person arrested twice and charged twice with both conspiracies. So that complicated things somewhat with, with the whole court process. So people watching this are probably thinking, how on earth did you get involved in this? You're a military man. You're a very good speaker come across as very intelligent. How, you know, did it build up? So let's go back then to, you know, what it was like for you as a teenager, perhaps. Were you involved in drugs at, at that age or were you no, on a different path back then? Totally different. I mean, my parents split when I was 14. So that, it happens. Yeah, and I'm not here to, there's no finger pointing anyone. It's just one of those things. Unfortunately, my dad, was had custody of myself and my brother, and um, he was working hard. You know, so with him working hard, he was rarely there, and I decided this would be an opportunity for me to be a little bit sneaky. I'll just start bunking off a of school, which I found I could get away with. So I kind of like began to be slightly evasive at a very young age, and it was kind of like the done thing back in the eighties. You know, let's bunk off school, let's pop downtown, and so I had very little interest in an academic future. Clearly, because I didn't turn up to any of my exams, I just didn't bother. And because my dad was so busy, he wasn't really in a position to sort of grip me. He did his best and he did a fantastic job. Unfortunately, I, it was me. I was, wasn't ready for that kind of world. So I kind of dead against drugs, but I was getting up to no good. I was starting to get involved in. Did you say you were against drugs? Yeah, at totally that against age. drugs. Yeah, really. What, what drugs education had you had? There was none. It just wasn't <laughs> something I wasn't aware of it. It just wasn't something that came into my life. The only. The only introduction to drugs I had at that age, at the age of about 15, was in Grange Hill when Zamo got hooked on heroin. <laughs> and that was about 1985. And if those people who are of a certain age will remember that, they did the song and everything. And that's the only thing I knew about drugs. I thought, well, that's really bad. I'm not going to get involved in that then. So my life was going slightly, slightly off-piste, I feel like. So I looked at a few options and I thought, well, uh, at 16, I thought I'd try and join the, Marine, join the Royal Marines. I applied. Um, they knocked me back. So you're too young. You're not ready for this. Clearly, I wasn't ready. So I went back to just bouncing between different jobs. And at the time, my dad had um, met another another young lady and remarried. And um, I was 17 at the time. I just didn't get on with her. But I was 17. It's not her fault. She's 
she was quite close closer to my age than my dad's fair play dad well done but she's closer to my age and we were just treading on each other's toes and i was bunking off of work and she'd come in and she said like you've got to sort yourself out why didn't you join the army and i thought yeah that's a good idea why not i had no intention of actually getting in i said well let's just let's do this to get her off my back get my dad off my back i'll go for the motion just fell so i applied for the, the royal tank regiment the age of the back in the 17 and by april yeah april may uh 1988 i was in basic training i was already committed at that point and speaking of royal marines you've been on chris thrall's podcast yeah yeah yeah, yeah what great guy. guy what what was that yeah. experience like it was great it was great because i had no idea how much we had in common about our backgrounds and the things we've we'd got up to although his his life was it, the other end of the spectrum compared to mine um he was on the end of using drugs and just being completely wild for myself it's more a case of distribution although i was getting involved in ecstasy and and having a lot of fun in my early days so you had he had to scarface his law then not to get high in your own supply exactly exactly oh sensible man and you had a 15 year run and that's probably why yeah we all end up getting high on our own supply and it's our downfall yeah so, all right, I'm gonna, I'll put the link in for the what you do with Chris Thrall in the description box. Chris's channel is absolutely thriving. You had Robbie Williams on there, loads of great guests. I urge people to go out and support what Chris does. Chris has always had my back, and then we've had him on the True Crime Podcast twice, so check his stuff out as well. Tank Regiment, then. Mm, yeah. What's that like? It was great. Um, I think you when you're joining the forces, you, it's... It's very hard to describe what you go through in basic training. You think that basic training is hard work. You know, and it is, don't get me wrong. It's, it's a massive sense of mass conditioning of all these recruits. And, and you get, at the time, it was during the Cold War. It was 1988. You know, we didn't have these issues with, with um, you know, terrorism as, as it is now. Um, the Russians so are coming. The, it was. It was basically the Cold War front. We were working in Germany. That's Get like, a shell, a, a nuclear bomb shell <laughs> in your backyard. <laughs> Panic. You know, yeah. was going to push the button. Yeah. So Germany was was a, was a strange place to be. I was posted straight out there at eighteen, and I rather look at your unit. You 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 meet people from your your recruitment area. You're recruited from the same area, so they all speak with a fantastic southwest accent. We can understand each other. Um, and it was a baptism of fire because that's when the problems start because this is before the wall came down before the war yeah 88 yeah. so prior to the wall coming down so what you've got is predominantly a lot of squaddies where they're very very bored drinking culture is huge huge drinking culture and the naffy bar and to give you an example at the time and this is going to seem crazy price wise but to buy a beer in the naffy bar was one Deutschmark, which is the equivalent then of 30 pence wow yeah so you imagine how drunk you're going to be getting yeah on that and it's ridiculous it really is so naturally with the drinking comes everything else is all the violence and the fighting and the initiations and it was a really brutal time because initiations were just horrendous the things that go on behind those closed doors and i can't even go into that because it's just too much oh please that's what they want on this channel <laughs> i'm also watch stuff is like prison gang rapes and beheadings yeah well i'll, I'll, <laughs> I, 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 I'll give an example my, my initiation um when you arrive at your unit you're gonna have to you you drink a thing called a special and anyone from the tank regiment will dread this so naffy bar you'll basically get sort of grabbed by the senior troopers normally not you not the um the guys been promoted because they don't want to risk getting 
busted or losing their rank. And um, they'll do a top shelf, so they get a pint glass and they'll fill up with a, everything they can find behind the bar. Um, I mean, everything. And you'll make it stand on a table and there's families, not family, but there's wives and girlfriends. Stand on the table, yank your trolleys down and get this down your neck. So they pass with this pint glass and it curdled because they put lime and Baileys in it and a cigarette ends floating on the top and God knows what else. So I necked it and there's a pickled egg in the bottom. Oh! That, that just rolled down the glass and hit me on the nose and I, they said, yeah, eat the pickled egg. So oh! I had, so I had the pickled egg and they said, right, you got a choice. You, you can either go throw it up now oh! or it's going to come up later. I tried, but I couldn't. Um, so that was my introduction. And once you've drunk that, that special, you're kind of in initially. They said, yeah, he's willing to do anything, this guy. <laughs> he didn't run. Uh, it wasn't easy. It was one of the hardest things I've done trying to drink that. It, it wasn't good. But you kind of welcomed in. And that, that's really one of the first initiations. And some of the stuff, there's a lot of bullying goes on behind closed doors. There was then, not so much now. But that was really military life back in the 80s. And even the early 90s. You said there was a lot of fighting. You're just fighting each other. You're fighting people, oh, rival soldiers, local yeah, guys. Your, your local garrison town is always a, a melting pot for violence. And it would always be the case of there would always be these various bars and clubs, which are going to be your haunts for your squatters. Your locals aren't going in there. Your local Germans, they're not going near the place because it's just <laughs> horrendous. And you'll walk in there and you, you'll you see a club and you'll be gang of infantry over there gang of artillery over there, gang of tankers over there, gang of something else over there. And you just sat there waiting for it to go off. And it's it's no fun because you're just drinking. You're waiting for the first person to chuck a pint glass into the, the next crowd and just, just wait for it to erupt. That's pretty much what it was. Sounds like a night out in all the shop. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much any garrison town is just yeah. horrendous. Yeah. And, and I, I don't think it's much better now. Any memorable fight moments? No, just too much. Just, just mayhem. Just mayhem. And and it's not like in fact, yeah, there was one. There was one. And it's known as and it's this goes down in history. <laughs> um we had some rivalry with the next with next door's camp. Always tankies and infantry. And and I got a lot of time for infantry now. We're we're all moved on now. And um there was one night in this bar and, and I think what happened, a group of local infantry lads had jumped on a boat five, 10 or 15 of our guys and given her a proper leather in. So we decided we we're going to hit the bar the next night. So it's planned. Now, when you go out of your, your military base, you sign out of the camp. You know, you, you, they need to know you've gone out so you sign back in again. They didn't, they just opened the gates for us. We went out about 10 carloads of people. We drove down to this bar called Publicities, baseball bats, anything we could have in our hands. And we literally just mobbed the place. So we ran into this bar, 50 strong, and just annihilated the place. Now, what we weren't ready for was the owner, the natural want to protect his his property, to come run out with a samurai sword, start hacking at people, which he was very good at. It was one lad, and he, and he recovered. He took, took one guy's hand nigh on clean off. It was held on by a tendon and a bit of skin. Um, he required a lot of surgery to get that back on, and, he, and he's, he's fairly made a good recovery on that one. But they got, got cut across the net. There were... Slashings everywhere. I'm not surprised. We wrecked his bar. Fair enough. You know, come out and just do what you got to do. But yeah, this guy, he, he nearly lost his hand because of it. Wow. He was strapped up for a long time. Wow. Yeah, that, that was a biggie. That was a biggie. So these bars were those constant fights then? Yeah, pretty much. Did they just like not have bouncers? It was just, it was just a war zone, is it? They got guys on the door, but 
there's nothing they can do. If it goes off, it goes off. They just got to stand back and let you get on with it until it comes. That's what they did. Just stand back. Yeah, they used to just let you get on with it. Bloody hell. It was just chaos. Do they try and get you to take it outside so the property doesn't get damaged? <laughs> they could try. <laughs> it, usually there's too many, but I think once, and you're not just talking a couple of couple of guys, you're talking a couple of regiments. You're talking a whole load of people. It's not just like three or four friends. You're talking like a, you could be have a squadron full of guys against a company full of infantry. You're talking groups of 20s and 30s. And you got like three or four door staff. Holy shit. It's and like, usually the door staff, to be fair, would normally squad is on on moonlighting, on nights off. And so the people who owned these bars? Who owned them? Yeah. Local Germans. I mean, they made a lot Local of money. Germans. Yeah, yeah. They, say they would make a lot of money on us because we drink a lot back then. It was a drinking culture. So they just factor it in as the cost of doing business that it's going to so, be a war zone. Well, you go in there, you look at around, and you think it's, it, it sawdust on the floor. And there's nothing there which isn't already been broken. Yeah. Which isn't that you just got to pick it up and set it straight it's yeah. not done there's no glass cabinet there's nothing there which is going to get smashed up you know, it's already been smashed up so in bars typically men meet women and uh, relationships are formed were women like uh, would they avoid these places well that's a weird thing is you would get women in there yeah. and they were clearly looking for a, a squaddy yeah but German women yeah yeah, yeah. usually yeah, yeah yeah but they're not usually the, the finest ladies going really they're yeah, usually a bit rough yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think everyone's been through, been through them. So you probably wouldn't want to go. Near oh my them. goodness! Yeah, because there are. I had an ex-German girlfriend. She was, she was, yeah, really, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I had a couple of German girlfriends, and I, I quite like the accent, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I was only young, mine, I was only eighteen, nineteen years old. So I was very naive in that world. Yeah, you know, it was, it was like I say, a baptism of fire. Yeah, it, it's just, a, it's just a whole lifestyle that you're just not used to. <laughs> we're not ready for. She'd be like, Sean, you Ashlo, come here, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we know all the best German words. Yeah, I do know. <laughs> yeah. So how long did that fun last then? And you got moved on to something else? So basically, I was I served for till 95. So we did an operational tour in Northern Ireland in 1990. Amazing. Any action there? Yeah, we, it, it was. We had, we are on the Chinook coming out of Belfast to, take, to be taken to our camp in, in, in Armour, South Armour, a place called Middletown. We're on the Chinook going out and you sit along the, the, the outside edge of the Chinook. So as you're going along, you just, you got all your kit, you got your weapons, you're ready to go. And suddenly we're not moving in a straight line. We're moving around and we, we're kind of moving around in circles there. And we're looking out, I can see out the back door because the back door is half caught. So you can kind of see out the back door anyway. And you're just thinking, so much going on and we we naturally looking down the ranks of all the guys and they're passing stuff down they're passing down loaded magazines charged with, with ammunition it's so right the last 12 guys on we're dropping you off there's been an incident we've not even been on the island more than an hour and a base of bomb had gone off and it had taken out a a car and i remember it there was it was a mistake it was it, the target was taken out but as it was timed and triggered, there was a car going the opposite way and it actually took out, I think it killed three nuns, three Catholic nuns. No Big press in 1990. This was in June 1990. Yeah. So inadvertently, the guys had taken out three nuns as well as their target. Oh. So we were then aimed to drop off and secure the area. So the Chinook was circular and ready to land. Luckily, the guys who were in their catchment area, they got deployed quick enough. So we just sort of like, picked up and carried on and so we were ready to go and i thought i've only been here a few minutes i'm already going to get down and deal with this so we had that one 
Um, we went through relatively well. Then in November, we had an IED go off, which just missed us. Um, what was that like? It, it was really exciting because I didn't die. Um, how, basically, cl how close were you? Close enough to feel it. Yeah. We'd had an incident that had gone off. There had been a, um, members of the RUC had been taken out with one IED. We were flown in. Now, we landed in the area and we had to satellite out, which means when you satellite, you will spiral out from the point of, of where, the, where the incident is. And you're looking for things like command wires, triggering points, any kind of signs of evidence to show that there's, there's been some activity there, just to basically search in the area. So the whole troops satelliting out, satelliting out in, your, in your sort of teams. And we got round to this corner, about, I think we've been there about 30 minutes, and there's been this massive bang and a shockwave. We looked around, this bomb had gone off um, about 100 metres away, maybe slightly less than that. And it was a secondary device planted for us on the timer. And it was set to go off about 45 minutes after the first device because mm. they planned and timed how long it takes us to get there. So well, if we time it to go off at this time, we should get someone. Didn't get anyone. Wow. Got a cow. Killed a cow. Didn't kill the cow. I did kill the cow. Yeah. Um, that was a 500-pound bomb. It was a big one. So we, we felt it. And then the, the downside, we had to dig in then into a trench and live in a trench for three days in the middle of November in Ireland. And that was cold and wet, sleeping in a wet sleeping bag. But that's, you don't think of that. You just think the fact that you didn't die. Yeah. And that's always a result. You know, there's a lot of guys now who've been over to Afghanistan and Iraq and they've not been so lucky. And they've got anyone that's had a close call that never felt more alive. That probably gives you like a stoic philosophical perspective of life, does it? That it's yeah. a miracle that I'm alive and I'm just going to enjoy the rest of it. Well, you do. Yeah. You, you, you're thankful that you, that you, that you, it wasn't your time. Yeah. And then that gives you this ridiculous notion that you might just be a slightly invincible, but, <laughs> you're, but you're not <laughs> clearly, but you think, well, I've gone through all this. Did you get shot at in Ireland? No, I got shot over by my own guys. Um, Friendly we were, fire? Yeah, but it wasn't It wasn't as such. We were doing a range practice in a place called McGilligan. And normally when you've been on the island for a while, you'd be taken up this place where you can do live firing just to keep your, your, your skills honed. And we were doing a fire movement. And we were sort of, it's known as pepper potting. And we saw a couple of guys go forward, drop down, and the guys behind will cover you. And I'd sort of crept around, we're on this hill, and there's a lot of fur and a lot of bushes and for a lot of cover. And I was down, and the marshals are supposed to make sure that no one's firing over the top of anyone. You know, the, you, it's not, the, it's a safety thing. And um, I was sat like, I could hear this, things sounded differently. Mm. You, you got the crack and the thump and the sound of the rounds. And, I, and all of a sudden, there's someone shouting, stop, stop, stop. And the guy behind me was kept on firing, and the rounds were just over my head, literally oh. just over my head. So it was close, it was almost a friendly fire on the ranges so that's pretty close so that feeling of invincibility was enhanced by that or are you thinking shit yeah it just kept on getting worse you know, so <laughs> I'm still not dead <laughs> so, yeah so it, it, but it, again it's it's something you're used to you, you don't see it as weird or abnormal you think well that's just part of the job isn't it you know, whether I get shot or not shot whether it's practice or real it happens it's, it's a calculated risk of uh, what you expect any other close calls no, 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 not, not, not such. I was very lucky. Being in the armoured armored Corps, you're very fortunate in the sense of that your role is, is as such that you're not going to get deployed to certain areas. Now, our only disappointing thing was when we were in Northern Ireland, the first Gulf War had kicked off in the back end of 1990. 
we were watching on the TV in our base in Ireland, all of the, the, the air fire and the air assaults going Scud on. Scud missiles. Yeah, Scud missiles going into I remember into watching Baghdad it too. And, yeah, yeah, so we were watching this, all the night shots of all the stuff going on, and we're thinking, wow, that's amazing. And they said, right, when you get back from Ireland, you're being deployed immediately to the Gulf. Well, yes, we're going to get to go on our tanks, and we're going to go over and do some something real. We've been slogging around on foot for the last six months in an infantry role, which we enjoyed, but now we get to be a tank soldier, and do what we're trained to do. So we got back to the back to Germany, uh, January uh, 1991. We were entitled to a block leave because it's, it's your post tour, you get a bit of time off. So we went home for three weeks. Back to Germany again, mid January, I think. Dates could be slightly hazy. Right, we're getting you back now to Lulworth to retrain and freshen up on the tank gunnery systems. I was a tank gunner, so we're going to get you retrained, refreshed up, and get you out to the Gulf. Well, great tanks are out there waiting for us. They've been shipped out. This is great. We're going to do this for real. And then it stopped. Oh, it was over. Oh. <laughs> Literally, we, we'd finished the training in Lulworth and we got on the, we were going to get on the plane and said, sorry guys, not needed. Wow. Tanks are out there. So we weren't, we were required. And why did you leave the military? So a couple of reasons. So one was after the Gulf War and, in, and Northern Ireland, at that time in 1994, I thought to myself, we did a tour to the United Nations in Cyprus as well, which was, which was just six months drinking and partying. It can't, it doesn't really count. Um, after that, you thought to yourself, well, what's the chance of anything else going off in my career? I thought, I might just get out. I met a girl on leave as well and yeah, thought I fell, fell in love. And also as well, we, there were circles of us, because at that time in 93, 94, the Germans had decriminalized cannabis. And a lot of squadies were sort of having a little dabble, me included. So we were kind of like had these secret little circles going on within our unit. And it still goes on now. It's part of what I'm trying to do is to deter that. And people were experimenting with drugs, mainly cannabis, a bit of LSD now and again. And they brought in compulsory drug testing, CDT. And if you get test positive, you're getting kicked out, dishonorable discharge, you're gone career finished with a bad discharge as well. So I was experimenting with this. I was thinking I'm enjoying this on leave. A lot of my friends were moving into the ecstasy scene. It's early nineties. They're trucking, taking a bit of amphetamine. I was thinking, this is really fun. And I thought I'm gonna get myself in trouble. So I, I think I've made the conscious decision at the time and promotion had really slowed down to a halt because when the war came down in 89, they reduced the forces in Germany quite significantly and they disbanded regiments, they amalgamated regiments and put a block on promotion, which meant that you're not going to reprogress really because they, what they've done is they've brown-lettered and, and um, redundancy all the main people out, set the new structure, built, set up the new regiments and said, right, work with that for a few years. And I thought, well, I'm 24. I've met a girl I love. I've had a great time in Cyprus. It's raining in Germany. I'm starting to do drugs on a very, very, very low level. I'm going to get out and give it a shot. You know, so I made the decision in 94 to leave and get out and move on, which I did, you know, and, and at that time, a lot of people were leaving. I mean, not just in our regiment, across the board, and a lot of guys thinking the same thing. It's not what it was. It's time to move on. So we, we, so I did, I say we, because a lot of us left at the same time. And, um, looking at my options to, to what do I do? What can I do? Academically, as you know, there wasn't much going on for me. So um, 
I looked at my role in security and I thought, well, I've, I've done a couple of years in the forces and reconnaissance. I quite enjoy the sneaky beaky stuff. The film, The Bodyguard, had just been out with Kevin Costner <laughs> and Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston. And that was in 90, I think it was in early 95, late 94. Yeah. And I thought, I'm going to give that a go. So when you leave the forces, you get given the option to look at a, a new career path. And offer you, offer you, you, you can get your budget expands with your experience and your time in, in the forces. So um, my budget, I think, was about four grand at the time, very much 1994. And they give you a big fat folder to look through. It's all paperwork. This is pre-lot of computers. And look at what your budget will allow you to do. And mine said you can do a close protection course with a company called Task International in Maidstone, four-week course in a hotel, and you qualify as a bodyguard or close protection officer, and they cover a lot of different aspects of that. I thought, perfect. That's the one for me. It's within budget. I'm going for that. So I did. So I went on, you know, a friend of mine, who I was in the forces with, we both did it on, we both did the same course. He was getting out as well. And um, off we went to Maidstone, jumped on a plane off to Maidstone. And the, the crazy thing is they gave us the cash, which is really stupid to give squaddies the cash to pay for the course when you get there. A lot of squaddies don't make it to the course. <laughs> they just spend the money. Um, we got there, paid the bill. But is this is the free grand? Yeah, yeah. They, it's ridiculous. Wow. We actually made money on the exchange rate as well, which is which was really good. So we got back and um, we did this course with XSBS, which was a fantastic course. Never forget the instructors, both special forces, working with them, uh, police force and, and different people sort of training. It's all these different aspects of CP work. I loved it. The whole point of what we were doing, it, the, the level of training with what I learned in the forces in the four weeks with these guys was elevated so much. It was just incredible. The, the things they taught me about CP work self-defense, surveillance, the weapons they use, weapons training, weapons handling, disarming people. In that four weeks, I learned so much with these guys. It's a testament to what these guys are all about, the special forces. And I'm not going to claim I'm, I've not got special forces training, but I was trained by these guys and it was incredible. The what does CP that, stand for? Close protection. Close protection. So if I've, if I've got a knife, then, can I come at you? <laughs> What, what I've already shot you. <laughs> <laughs> what about the that one? Yeah, yeah. So I'm rusty now. Some points okay. ago, you, you, it, it, it forms of a keto. Yeah, where you, yeah. you use leverage. I mean, the one is you grab the barrel of the weapon. I'm not going to show, you, but you, you can disarm someone pretty quickly. Yeah, and you, you, generally speaking, you've got the weapon from them, and you've got control of that trigger. Yeah. Normally, if you put one in them, you put one in them, don't you? So <laughs> I'm lucky I haven't had to use that before. Right. Chance on, I'll just probably just get shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had Alex Reed put me in a chokehold right here, almost put me to sleep one time. Yeah. They love demonstrations on this channel. <laughs> <laughs> so you did your training. Yeah. And then are you like assigned then to powerful people famous people or anything yeah like that. so th th this was the really scary thing now um the forces is really good at making you feel very confident in your abilities to to survive and everything else so you just kind of keep that one in the back of your mind for now and then you do this course with the special forces and add that to an already overly confident and unrealistic person at the age of 25 and then you think to yourself I'm really special. Because <laughs> you think that because the military make you feel like you're, and you are to a point because of the things you're prepared to do. Um, 
So I got a job straight away in surveillance immediately with ex-police force, ex-special forces, ex-HMRC. And it was amazing because I was following people around. I was actually doing footwork. It was before the cameras were the size of suitcases. Yeah. You know, so it was really hands-on stuff. Did it for about two years, but I was doing some CP work in high-end security. So I'd, and these were the kind of catalysts which kind of started to make me make some poor life decisions because in 95 at the same time, I was enjoying my clubbing. So I've got kind of two mm. things going on. One is my CP work. The other one is me clubbing and my partying. Which clubs are you going to? In Bristol, there's a club called Odyssey, which it's not Lakota, which was the big, but Odyssey at the time was for me, was mainstream club. It wasn't a sweaty dance club, but I turned it into a sweaty dance club <laughs> <laughs> to, to a point. Um, yeah, so that place for me was like, it was like an oasis. So I'm doing this CP work and we were given a job in, 96, me and a good friend, he's my co-defendant actually. I won't tell his name, but he was a co-defendant as well. He was doing CP work as well, a lot of high-end security. And we were doing work for a company called Top Guard, which did all the big boxing venues. They did the ringside, looking after the VIPs in ringside and, and things like that. And we they had a contract with Oasis. So my baptism of fire again was being given work behind the stages or or backstage looking after some of the VIPs on and off and securing the area with Top Guard during the Oasis gig at Nebworth in 96 I think it was I saw stuff there which I was totally mesmerised by the amount of drugs going on and after parties and people can clearly off their faces all the time Yeah, and I was like wow and I remember being stood in this tent getting a drink next to Patsy Kensett at the time she was going out with with Liam so that was that era it was a messy time and I said I couldn't believe it I thought wow I just like because for me that time she'd been in Lethal Weapon before and big names and it's just little old squaddy just mixing with these not mixing but I was in the company of these these iconic people and then the after party and we were in there and when I saw what was going around in there and I'm not going to say but there were bags of stuff in hand and around <laughs> And when I realized that this stuff was being supplied by potentially some of the people that were employing me, I thought, I want some of that. <laughs> well, I didn't want some of that in the bag. I want to do what they're doing. It looks really like, wow, how about that? But that was short-lived. That was one experience. That kind of lived and died on that one night. But it's stuck in there. And that sort of thing doesn't go. And I was impressionable. I was confident that I wanted to, you know, okay, that's interesting. I just took note of it. So I was in the clubs, partying and dancing, and this was in 95, approaching 96. And everyone was doing pills. Well, you could see people doing pills because they were having a really good time. Smiling and their eyes Yeah, like, but I was doing door work at the time. So I was doing door work on the Thursday, Friday, and Saturday on, the, on a, a city centre pub. And I was taking amphetamine because I wanted to. No other reason than the fact that I wanted to, and it made me feel good. Ridiculously confident, but it also slightly paranoid, and that's not good if you're on the door. And what I found was, being on the door, I was missing the life I really wanted to be having, which was the clubbing and the partying. So I'd finish my door work at 11 o'clock, and I'd go off to the club and catch up with everyone, and, and then 
my mates there, and they're all having a good time, and they're clearly off their faces. And I said, what are you doing? So we've done a pill. I went, where have you? He said, got any left? He said, no, but I'll get you one. He said, come with me. I thought, oh, okay, no worries. So I followed him, and we went downstairs, and there's podiums in the clubs, and there's two guys, bald heads, off their tits, shirts off, surrounded by women. And I'm thinking, wow. That's, they're having a really good time. And then, then they looked over and they came and gave a big sweaty hug. There you go, mate, there's your pill. And I had that one, I, and I ate that. And then an hour later on, I didn't know what the hell was going on. But all I knew was that I was having the best night of my life. And these two guys on the podium, they kind of like looked like a focal point in that club. And I thought, okay, I want some of that as well. I like what they're doing. Because the weird thing is when you're sort of backtrack when you come on leave from the forces what I found was everyone's very welcoming they're glad to have you there and you're kind of although you're part of this group you're welcomed into that group you're not really a part of that group you're kind of and I said this to Chris you're kind of like a satellite on the outside because you no longer feel like you belong anymore because you really belong in the forces with your your brothers and their forces so you're not really part of this social gathering or that circle that although you're not unwelcome you just don't feel like you fit in as much as you would like to so you've always you're always trying to catch up with current events you're always trying to catch up with how people are you don't really know who's who who's going out of who you're just this person's always sort of like on the outside so for me when i was coming when i actually came home and i saw this going on with the pills and ecstasy i thought to myself and that's they're really in the thick of it there and then I just took note of it and the group of lads I was knocking around with at the time, we were all just having like a pill on the weekend, on a Saturday, just one pill. And our guy that used to get them for us, he got a little bit paranoid. So I don't really want to get them anymore. I said, I said, well, I'll get them. So where, where'd you go? And he said, well, the guy, they're stasium there. You go to his house the day before or the, on the day, pick up your gurners as we would call them. And then, um, you know, just sort them out. So yeah, I ain't got a problem with that. I've done worse. It ain't going to kill me, is it? I've, I've this, you know, this sense of invincibility from what I've been in the forces. So I went and seen him. I saw him come down to pick up the pick up the things on credit, I'd get them on tick. He said, "That's fine. Just pay me on Monday." So I mean, do you want it? So I need five. He said, "Well, there's there's your five. Just pay me for the four tenors at the time. So just pay eight pound each. You get these near more or less free." I thought, oh, okay, I just got a free pill. That's brilliant. I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting them to pay 50 quid. You're not 40 quid. I thought, okay, that's, uh, that's interesting. So um, went back, sort of the lads out. And next, you know, I'm kind of like, you know, we're, we're, we're already sorted now. We ain't got to spend our night looking for a pill. We've got it covered. Just enjoy ourselves now. It's nice to drop it before you go in the club, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we used to have a routine where we, we would go out at about eight o'clock because I just loved going out and having a few drinks. And we had a, a set time. So, right, we'll take our pill at 10 o'clock because we know that it's going to last for about two, two or three hours. And by the time the club shuts at two, we're kind of on our way down and we're going to have a smoke and that's the night done. So that was our routine. We'd take it at 10 o'clock. We'd sit around the table, look at each other, smiling. Did you get your dance on? Yeah, did we ever? Yeah, yeah. I couldn't get me off the dance floor. It was a nightmare. You know, I, I didn't stop. Even to the even to the crap music, I still dance. So yeah, I, I'd be flat out. And then your body just happened? moves, doesn't it? On ecstasy. Yeah, you do, and everything made sense. And all the yeah. music just goes starts making sense. The yeah, beats and the beats. and, and the, the, the beat is a lot louder. Yeah. And, and what I found was because we were always having a good time, and let's say out dancing, people would clearly see we we're off our tits. Oh, where'd you get your pill from, mate? 
So we're already sorted. So can you get me one? So no, but I'll get you one next week. <laughs> and then people are asking. So then what I'm doing soon, that's so why can we get 10 off you? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Just just chuck us like the 80 quid next week on Monday or Tuesday. Oh, okay, so that's fine. So I'm then going out buying it for tenors. I'm, I'm making 20 pounds. That covers my drinks. Oh, and a little bit of taxi money. <laughs> so it progresses. And then it goes from like 10 to 20. And then you know, you, you're buying your first 100. And you thought, well, I can't sell them in the clubs now. It's not taking 100 pills in the club. So, you know, or I used to get them in the in the little bags, put them into um, pairs. You'd have a line of like, a row of five in pairs and I'll cut the inside loop of my trousers. I'll feed them around the inside belt loop of my trousers. They go all the way ranked. So I'd have like about 50 or 60 or, you know, <laughs> under pills around it. And they, they couldn't detect it. So I'd literally just feed them out another bag, get rid of them and do that. So this club in the end, it we had a corner, it's called Pillhead's Corner for obvious reasons. So what I used to do is at the time, my friend, can't say his name, he'd come out of the army we're living in the same sort of building at the same time. We had a partnership going. Whereas I would hold, I would hold the pills. He'd hold the money. You know, but he was really good at spending the money. We'll go into that at a later point. <laughs> so this club, in the end, what we did is we got it kind of fairly well sewn up. Is we had the door staff um, on side, give them a gurner, keep them happy because they'd gone down by they're like about five quid each by then. I think it's about a year or so later. The prices have really started to drop in the late nineties. Um, bar staff, give them a pill, drinks covered. Manager, give them a pill, he'll bring them in for us. DJ, give them a pill, give them a light jog a pill. Good music all night, because everyone's off their tits. And that club went from being like a sort of, people drinking a lot of beer, still a lot of, still an element of that, to the fact that it was a lot of people taking drugs and a lot less trouble because of it. Although the door, the, the other door knew what I was doing, they kind of said, better the devil we know. And I thought, well, I'm not going to take that as a blessing. I'm going to take it as a fact, you know what I'm doing. I won't rub it in your face. Just let me get on with it. And it's kind of an unwritten agreement. They did pull me in eventually and search me a couple of times. I think they had to, but they didn't ever get me. So I was quite lucky. So yeah, that kind of... So what I've done is I've created this structure around me where I said about being a satellite on the outside of this group of friends. I was suddenly this person in the middle. And it wasn't about being a center of attention. It was about belonging to something. And when you come out of the forces, you lose that sense of belonging. That's gone because everyone in, the, in there, you all think the same, you act the same, everything is the same. When you're out, you're kind of isolated. So to create this kind of structure around me, made me feel a part of something which I needed. I craved for that sense of belonging again. And that's what that did. I totally recognize that because I was in Arizona. I was a stranger in a foreign land. Mm. I created a counterculture around me. Yeah. And then, yeah, that was my role. Yeah. Circus master, mm. ringleader of the, yeah. yeah. Um, and about what you, well, the other thing you just said, if anyone out there has seen the studies by Professor David Knott on ecstasy and alcohol, how alcohol triggers the aggressive part of the brain and there's a lot more violence and crime around it. Actually, alcohol is the number one drug in murder and all violent crime and all sex crime. So what you said, though, is completely backed up by all the studies. Yeah, I mean, it's a case of not condoning the drugs, but what I found was when we were there in, in this bubble, if you like, of all of us in on the same wavelength, completely wasted, having a really good night, um, if we had a group of lads turn up and they'd been drinking, it'd be like, oh, God, here we go. 
you think, oh, beer heads are here. We're gonna have it's gonna be problems. Totally now. different vibe, isn't it? Yeah, because they're drunk and they're dancing and they're falling over the women and they're grabbing oh, women. Just, yeah, yeah, and, and they're yeah. not interested because they're off their tits dancing. Yeah, yeah. They all look good because they're in little little dresses and having just having a good time. They don't want it to be a meat market. No, exactly. So we always find that as a problem. You know, and the, and the door staff are really good at sort of like ushering them away from us and getting yeah. to leave us alone. So that was quite good. You know, the piss yeah. head vibe and the e head vibe just doesn't mix very well. No, definitely not. Definitely yeah. not. I mean, I, I used to be really discreet because I, I didn't want to be known for what I was doing. I didn't want to rub it in the face of anyone because we never knew the, the police station was opposite the club. So my drink, I wouldn't be blatant. I'd, I'd even have a bottle of beer emptied out with water in it. You know, I would even have the patrol that I was drinking. Be the same bottle all night, but it, so I even sort of covered my tracks in that way. I was really sort of like as sneaky as I could be, trying to hide everything, you know. Even the vibes on the different drugs are very because at some of our after parties, we'd have like a ketamine room, ecstasy yeah. room, a pothead room. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, but yeah. the after parties were always messy because my flat, so this is something else, the flats we lived in was chaos because when I first got out of the army, I just rented a, a, a like a little bedsit thing and there's I won't say the name of this organisation but it's a charity set up to house ex-forces and you rent off them it's quite cheap and they just started to finish a new development uh, in Bristol on Bath Road and um, it was two Victorian houses converted into six flats and they had I think they had one house occupied at the time and it was the, the middle floor they offered me the flat upstairs I thought perfect it's cheaper than where I am it's brand new it's fairly local to the centre of town I'll have that. So I got in there and then started having parties, didn't I? You know, regularly, nearly every Saturday or every Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And downstairs moved out. I can't think why <laughs> moved out. So my mate who I did the bodyguard course with, he was working in London. You and moved him in? I rang up, I rang up, I said, mate, there's a flat empty down here. Do you want to get down? He said, because he was coming down on weekends. I said, mate, get down here. There's, there's like four or five flats empty. He said, yeah, no problem. They moved them in below me. Yeah. So that was good. And then... See this mate, military strategy of the different yeah. levels of protection there. Yeah. So the other mate who just got out, we bumped into him. He was fleecing the cop at the time and then he was a manager. And um, he was loading us up with food at the back door because we, we spent all the money on drugs. So I said, where are you living, mate? He said, oh, with my mum. I said, there's some flats down here. Come so he moved into the flat next door so out of the six flats three of us occupied three of them there was someone living downstairs but the other two never got moved into because it was pandemonium <laughs> it was unhinged that small little block of houses with us in there it was just like being back in the barracks with zero rules <laughs> so it was chaos and so the parties as you imagine we had these three flats covered between us and his parties gone on all of these flats did you ever take too much and wig out to the point where I didn't, where I thought I was going to die. We used to do this ridiculous thing, and this, I hope my mum don't watch this. Um, we'd be pilled up, and we'd come back, and we'd, we'd be doing different things. So it's that flat full of guys and girls having a good time, and poppers would bounce around because it was quite good to make the pill pick up again. I don't know why we did this, but Lucas' bottles used to be made of glass, and we had a thing, we did, only did it a couple of times, thank God. Pour some poppers in the Lucas bottle, heat it up with a lighter, and vaporize it, and then shot blast it. And yeah, you feel like your head's going to come off, and like your heart's going to explode. And we did a few of those, and I thought, yeah, that's uh, that's heavy duty stuff. And then 
but I was lucky. I always had a, always drew a line. No, no matter what time the partying would finish, I would always go to bed that night or that early hours in the morning. So it might be five, six in the morning, but I'd have to go to bed. And I'd get up at nine, 10 o'clock, not necessarily feeling particularly good, but I would get up and that would give me that sense of structure. And I'd carry on with the day. I wouldn't touch drugs, for, touch drugs throughout the day. I might have a smoke, a bit of pot, but I would stay off the class A's right through the day until the evening when it was going to be pirate time again. To get to sleep off coming off like speed and stuff, did you use Xanax or anything? No, I didn't. I didn't use anything at all. That was the weird thing is if I'd, no, I did some, um, some Azapans once and uh, I necked about three of them and I thought I'd go to KFC first because it was on a Sunday night. I hadn't eaten for three days, not eating properly. So I necked these Tomazapan with Diazepan, one or the other. So I had a few of those and we shot off to, K or shot off to KFC and um, bought the food just made it back home again and woke up about a day later on with a cold KFC next to me. Um, never made it to eat the food. So no, that's the first time I actually bothered with that, but I didn't want to get into the sleepers because I thought, I'm tired enough. I will sleep if I can just get off the chemicals. That's good. You know, so I stayed away from that. Yeah, we were on crystal meth and sometimes that just keeps us going for days. Yeah. I can't, I hate the drawn out feeling of, mm. of I know guys that can go, keep taking it. And I thought, what? And especially when we got into coke, when we when the pills sort of seemed really sort of tapered off at the back end of the millennium, 1999, 2000, I met my wife at the time. Our first son was born. You know, I'd stopped clubbing. And that for me was kind of really the, the turning point in the dealing because I was no longer getting hammered for three nights a week. So... By stopping going out clubbing, I discovered another three days in the week because I wasn't recovering or coming down till Wednesday. So I found out we had a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday. I thought, where did these, I've not seen these days for like two years or three years. So then I thought, I'm slightly more motivated now. And then the pills seemed really, the ass and fell out of the market and the, they went down to pence. I mean, I was buying then in 1999. 2000, I was starting to buy about 10,000 a week. And you're paying like 40p a pill, if I remember rightly. But you weren't selling for nothing. They were going out for next to nothing as well. They're going out for like 60p, you're making 20p a pill. You think, what's the point? And was the ecstasy the same or was it diluted uh, at that point? Surrender. So in 97, if I, if I recall my dates and I've been wrecking my brain, about 97, we had a major drought. The ecstasy market just died. There was nothing. We couldn't get anything at all. It was really bad. We, there, were, there just weren't any pills. There was some crap going around, which was people saying slightly ketamine-based, slightly trippy, wasn't the same, wasn't loved up. And and I, I, I knew this because we'd went to a stag night in Amsterdam in, I think, about October 97, thereabouts. And I had a pill over there, and I was expecting it to be the user rubbish. And it wasn't. It was a pink Cali, and they're very known for being really good. And I thought, well... Let's wait and see. And I realised then that ecstasy is still around, MDMA is still knocking about, but clearly not in the UK for some reason. So it died off. And then the Mitsubishis were released and that's the iconic pill which brought ecstasy back into the market and made it seem like proper pills were back on the scene again. This is when I just started to import from Holland yeah. to America. Was um, I had like a only a five-year run, four or five-year mm. run. <laughs> but it was about 97, 98 yeah. Mitsubishis. Yeah. They they changed it because people who had been taking pills for, say, six months hadn't experienced a proper pill. Or there'd be very few that had done. 
they've been used to these other things which are like say 20 minute maybe slightly cat based some, something in there which got you wasted but not in the right way um, and these came back the mitzvahs hit the scene and they just were taken by storm so much so that people called pills mitzvahs yeah they didn't call them pills they called mitzvahs regardless of what was mitzvahs 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 yeah, double and, stack mitzvahs yeah double dip massive yeah, it, and, and that's what kind of flooded the market again and then I think it, that was open to abuse because people were stamping anything with Mitsubishi sign on it and you didn't know what you were getting. So, counterfeits always come in and spoil it and then you've got to change yeah. the press. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. That, that, that symbol had kind of lost its way a little bit and it was, it was abused quite badly. So really the pill market was just, it was dying. Mm. It was dying to death and everyone was, everyone was getting it for like 20, 30p. They thought, what's the point in, in getting a class A drug for 20, 30p, selling it for 50p on say maybe a thousand or, or you know five thousand at a time, you're not making any money. Well, in America, they were going for thirty dollars. The Mitsus in the clubs, really twenty plus pounds per pill yeah. in the '97, '98 uh, era. That's crazy, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's crazy. Because I know back in the UK before my time, they're like fifteen quid a pill. Yeah, and we were paying tenners. We were paying tenners in the club. You know, yeah. and then went down to eight, and it was six, and I started buying like say the ten thousand. Most of got was like fifty thousand once, so I paid like. Five. You're going back to the late 80s, early 90s, like the White Doves. Yeah, that was yeah. before I started taking us. Yeah, the White Doves was the big thing. That was yeah, it. Was doves, them. the big fat double dip doves. Then you had, you know, the Callies were the one. Yeah. Superman, Superman. All these different ones which are going around. And, and you've probably seen or tried most of them, you know. And, and I had a collection. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'd be nice to have a little sort of like a stamp collection. Wouldn't I had it? hundreds in my collection. Yeah. And, um, I ended up giving that to, let's say, a person, which is a good job, really, because if the cops, when they, the SWAT team finally came and they'd have got my hands on my collection, yeah. that would not have been good in it's court kind of for like, me. Uh, yeah, it's like a trail, isn't it? Yeah. You've got yeah. to go back the last five years here, mate. Yeah. <laughs> All they got was my flyers going back to like the late 80s. Yeah. Sasha yeah. and Groove Rider and Carl yeah. Cox. Yeah. Yeah. The big names. Yeah. 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 So all day, it was things like Jeremy Healy, it was Paul Oakenfold, it was Judge Jules. Yeah. All these big names, they were like gods. Yeah. They literally were like gods. These DJs were up in the front doing their thing. They were making it happen. They were creating, they were creating that atmosphere. And we were kind of like cementing it together with that, that ecstasy. Yeah. It's what bonded everything together. Yeah. It made it all make sense. Mm -hmm. And then it changed with, with Coke. It just, it just changed. because sketchy, doesn't it, with Coke? Mm, all the people that I was supplying through pills were sort of like, graduating from the club scene, mm. feeling a little bit too old for it. They were in their sort of like late 20s and I was going to go to a few bars and go and have a few lines. And I thought, well, I'm not really interested in that because it wasn't exciting. It was just like, it was very subdued. So I kind of like, I had a good pill market. I was in a, a sell a bit of cannabis as well. And I was looking at the option, I thought, I could start doing some coke maybe. And a friend of mine who's done some time now and he's out of it, he's moved on. He said, well, should we start doing it? I said, well, because he had a good market for it. So I said, why don't we just press it up ourselves then, mate? Do it that way. Let's not, let's not mess around. Let's, if we're going to do it, let's do it properly. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so we looked at, looked at the options of getting it pressed up and making it ourselves, which we did about 2002. So that's when we sort of jumped into doing it differently. So we were getting um, get a kilo of a proper one up from Liverpool, funny enough. And it's back then it was like, it was proper kit. 2002, we were paying like 27 grand. This Curtis Warren era. I think it was, yeah, yeah. So I don't know who the supply source was. Cali Cartel, I think. 
yeah Colombians. quite possible but it was good it when this stuff was coming through and i've had stuff from all over the uk now and this was like you knew it was quality but i've never seen more than a gram of coke before so when this kilo came in and we looked at it we thought shit look at that it was like shining it's pearlescent it was a particular smell to it i feel what we've got to now recraft this so we were turning one into three i think it was that was the measurement at the time and chuck and we we're getting manitol because that's all we knew to mix it was mannitol. We didn't have the we didn't have the likes of benzene at the time. It's like let's just throw some mannitol in it, which we're paying something like daft like five hundred quid for a tub of mannitol. I think it's irrelevant what what the cost was. It was what that money stood to make you at the time. What did you say your cost was out of Liverpool for a kilo? About twenty seven, I think twenty seven, twenty eight, and that was around out two thousand and two. The cheapest I got around out then was twenty six, mm. twenty six and a half, and that was around oh oh three thereabouts. Um, so yeah, we jumped in. So what I did is I basically went straight and just made a nine. My mate did the rest of it. I had a nine bar quarter key, bombed it and ounces. And then within a few weeks time, it was kind of fluctuating. I, I need half a key now. And it, it kind of, it started, it was really messy is the best way I can describe it. Because the people involved in Coke were different to those in pills. Um, the characters were very different. And certainly trying to get the money was very hard work. And that really changed the dynamic of the business because it became much more ruthless. But I'm not, that's not really my character. I'm more of a sort of business-minded person. And I kind of use negotiation to try and get things done rather than going in with people coming heavily with the guns and kidnappings, all that sort of stuff. So I tend to try and avoid that kind of clientele and, and work with people which were sensible and want to run it as a business. But it was messy. It was really up and down really really up and down and, and i didn't really establish myself at all for quite some time because it was just so many people getting nicked people bumping you shutting down droughts it just went all over the place it was really messy business i totally know where you're coming from i had offers because we were in arizona on the border of mexico kilos for like 10 to fifteen thousand dollars, but the large criminal organizations were in control of that in Arizona, in control of the the meth, the coke, and the weed. And there was a lot of violence, a lot of yeah, violence. Yeah. I was the new guy on the block with the ecstasy. And that ecstasy was like, a you know, something that in those years, they were like way behind in America. Mm. Even when one of my smugglers got busted at the airport with pills and vitamin jars yeah they said to her what are they and she said vitamins and they said cool put them back in a suitcase and told her to have a nice day no way yeah yeah that's a result <laughs> yeah yeah but the sketchiness around the um the customers as well of, of, of the coke and the crack it's like it leads to fiending doesn't it yeah on other drugs you know you do your actually go out have your dance mm. crack Wild man, my best friend, um, co-defendant, he was heavily on crack and meth out there all the time. Yeah. And he, he gave me a can of something. He's like, try this crack. I was in a little pipe or something. I can't remember properly. And it was like, twinkle, twinkle, twinkle. Yeah. You, my brain went like, duh, 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 duh. and then yeah. it was like, that was it, it was gone. I was like, what the fuck's that? And that was it. That so was I've it. Never, never done it. So oh, you never I, tried it? No, I, yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've had a fair few lines, don't get me wrong. I used to enjoy yeah. going out and, and clubbing the same as the next guy, but mm. 
The only time I ever really experienced crack was if you're buying a key and you want to know it's right. Yeah. And we'd, I'd have to be in the, the, the dirty position of having to wash, wash up a gram mm. to get a return and, and, and check its, you know, its purity. Yeah. And now I get thrown straight in the bin. I throw it in the sink. I wouldn't want it. What are you doing? I'm not interested in that. Yeah. I don't want that. I'm not. That's not what I'm about. <laughs> so that'd be getting thrown away. Yeah. You know. But it's the only way. I, that's the only experience I ever had with that was by having a test. Yeah. Test the coke. You know. But yeah, it just changed. It did. I had a few problems. I wrote, I wrote about this. I can't really give too much away because it's in the book. But I was knocked back into the Stone Age financially by a bust that went on about 10, 15 years ago. I had to recover the debt and it took a long time to get that debt paid off. And then when I finally paid off, the, the right thing to do would have been to, to get out and move on. I thought, well, I'm actually making some money now. So why would I want to get out if I'm actually doing all right? You know, I better live a little bit first, then I'll get out. So you set your goal, don't you? You set your exit strategy, as, as I said about it. And um, I kind of realized that I really liked motorsport. I wouldn't go into that too much yet, but... A lot of focusing money on cars and <clears throat> excuse me, having a bit of fun with with vehicles and everything else. And um it kind of accelerated me, accelerated me into this exit strategy where I want to set up this motorsport company. <laughs> so I built the Coke thing, it was getting bigger and bigger because at this point now I've made some good customers, made some good contacts, everything was flowing through quite well. We were had people starting out I'd gone from the point where I was having to do all the running myself to pay this debt off all the hard work I was pressing it up for people <clears throat> I was working a lot of hours to pay this debt to the point where I've actually got to a point now where I thought, right let's get a mate in to do this running for me my Cody my good friend I did security with he can cover that bit that's fine he's got that boxed off I'm doing the rest of it now and they got a bit better so let's get someone else in there they can cover a bit more running and it just grows doesn't it yeah so delegation a couple of runners a couple more runners few more runners. Well, let's get someone to press it for me now. I don't have to do that anymore. Let's get someone to do that for me. Let's get someone to count the money. I don't want to count it. I'll let them, I'll let them count the money. They say, I want it. I want it. Count it properly. All the heads facing the same way. Correct denominations. VAT packed into 25 grand things. Gift wrap it. You know, everything. So it's transport. And I really took it to the next level as, as, as much as I could with the cash that I was getting control of. This one, of course, bumped into the... Uh, the other conspiracy, <laughs> the, the other side, um, who are also involved in motorsport. So really, I was kind of building this. I'd focused. I found out that I loved driving. I always loved driving, but I loved. I, I did my first track day um, in two thousand and nine. And what I'd done is I'd set my company up called Launch Motorsport in 08. I thought I'd do a promotion on this. I do a photo shoot. So I looked around local and there's loads of old RAF bases around the UK, which aren't used for bases anymore. They're just private airfields. So a lot of them are just trading estates now. And a place called Kemble Airfield near Sirencester. And uh, they do F1 testing there on, on weekdays. So I know that they use it as a, as a track or a circuit as such. So I got in touch and I said, look, do you do, do you rent your airfield? I just want to do a, um, a promotional photo shoot for my company going into motorsport. So yeah, you can rent the, this section of the airfield out, which is like a sort of bit like the Top Gear test track kind of thing. Cost you a grand a day. And I thought, that's all right, no problem. So basically I was part of a few car clubs and um, I said, look guys, we're doing a, a, a photo shoot today. Do you want to come down and 
and be a part of this this um this photo shoot free track day so yeah we'll be down there definitely so i got like 20 or 30 cars down at this production company all paid in cash <laughs> so, but it wasn't too bad because due diligence wasn't really that effective at the time no one was that bothered it, it was kind of like creeping into a recession so people were just glad to get the money you know the, the, the we had the crash in back in the 07, I think it was, a financial crash. So people were glad to be getting paid money. And I was, that, I was actually thriving at that point. So we did this track day or this photo shoot. And I found I had a really good time just bombing around on the airfield. So I asked the owner, I said, look, can I do track days here? And they said, well, we don't normally do it. But yeah, sure, just give us your money. And I got St. John's Ambulance in. I got Marshalls <laughs> in. I got, I advertised it on the website, on all the different uh, forums. And I was doing track days. Uh, I think it was about once a month I was doing them, sometimes twice a month. And people were paying me 50 quid to come down. I didn't care if anyone turned up because I just drove on up myself all day. It was me <laughs> a couple of pals. It's a chance just to ass around on an airfield. I found out I was really good at driving. So then I started going onto the circuits, doing like Castle Coombe local circuit, Silverstone, and doing track days on there. And because I had funds, I didn't care if I crashed. <laughs> So when you shed that fear of crashing, you find out how good you can really be <laughs> because you don't care if you write your car, you just go and buy another one. So I kind of like, it allowed me, and I can't condone it, but it allowed me to explore something I wouldn't have had a chance to explore. And that was an ability to drive. Because well, I'd driven with the police and on this bodyguard course, so I knew how to drive certain aspects of, of defensive and, and defensive and tactical driving. This is different. And I found that I really enjoyed it. So I started competing in time attack. I started saloon racing. I sponsored a three car team in the British Drift Championship in 2010. So in 2010, so Onana did time attack and track days. 2010, I did the same thing, but I really went semi-professional with the driving then. And then I started looking at opening the garage up. Um, I thought I've got a good customer base now. Let's open the garage up. So the plan was in 2010, I was competing all through, drifting. It was amazing. It was just a wild, it was the best and worst year of my life. It started <laughs> off so well. Um, the garage was looking at it. We, sort, we found a building that was perfect. It needed a bit of work. Um, plowed a load of money into the building to, to get it up to motorsport spec, <clears throat> excuse me, which has to be, it's got to be good. And then the plan was to open it up on the 1st of October, 2010. Uh, which was perfect, really good because we had an opening day. Financially, it wasn't easy because I'd put everything into that and I was really starting to withdraw from selling the drugs. And I was thinking, right, I was ready to hand over to this guy that was managing it for me. So well, my exit strategy is I'm going to give you this. You're going to have everything. All I want is two or three grand a month off you just to pay the bills for the garage, just to make sure I've got that covered. Then I've got to worry about the, the rent. You know, at least that's covered. So everything's going fairly well. And then this opened in October. On the 20th of October, one of my runners gets taken down. About a key and a quarter of coke. Oh, fuck. How's that happened? Scratching me out thinking. And unfortunately, he was known for road rage, <clears throat> which I had experienced. I'm going to have a cough sec. <clears throat> Do you want any of your water? Yeah, quick drink. So he's known for road rage. Um... Preferably not while he's on the job. Yeah. Um, so when he'd been arrested, I thought it was associated with the fact that he'd had a bit of an incident. There's a marker on his car. 
really being a bit ignorant and just hoping that that was what the case was. But either way, it was too much. I thought, no, he's been taken down. He's got over a key of coke on him. Either way, this has got to be paid for. This is, this is a problem. So I kind of started to shut down. I thought, I'm going to shut down for a while, see how it goes. Who did you owe the money to? The guys which were linked with the co-defendants associated with the Serbians. Oh, okay. <laughs> so um, although they had the bill covered, um, it still needed to be paid. So naturally, you're putting everything in your can to get these bills paid off. And it's not easy. When things are on top, you, you can't, you're not functioning because you're closing down. So you're not, make, not generating the funds. So I've opened the garage which needed to be covering the cost of, I think, about four grand a month just to cover the, the rent and the wages, minimum four grand a month. You're no longer bringing that money in because you shut the business down. The garage ain't making the money because there's a recession on. You, you might pull in a couple of customers a day because they ain't got the money. Everyone's skint. You know, everything's falling out of the market. Everyone's in. I thought, this is going to be a disaster. So this guy says to me, the one that was managing the business for me, not the merch, but the, the Coke thing, he said, get going again, mate. You'll be right. I said, no, I'm not. I said, it's too much. He's like, I've got a runner for you. We'll do a couple of jobs. I thought, nah, I'm not comfortable with it. He said, just go on. I said, you'll be all right. I thought, because he wanted money. I said, all right, fuck it. I'll give it a go then. Um, so he got a runner. He was one, someone he knew. I won't say who, because you co-defendant. This guy did a job for me. I said, well, I need to get somewhere down south, down to the villages south of Bristol. So we off he goes on his merry way and he's actually picking something up. So we needed to get something which I was going to repress, expand it and bang it out. Well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Let's make some money on it. It's not just like, let's not, just not get a commission on it. Let's make some money. <clears throat> so he goes on the Trail Bridge. I've just said it now. <laughs> so he pops down the Trail Bridge. It's documented. Um, he picks up, I think it was only about four and a half ounces of Coke, but it was decent kit. Well, it should have been. He got arrested on the way back. <laughs> so I didn't know if the, never knew it was any good. So he got pulled on the motorway. So he'd done one deal, got pulled. Oh, definitely on top. So he gets remanded and he gets bailed. Did the police say why they pulled him? No, no, we didn't know. I mean, to me then, it was obvious what was going on. So I rang around everyone that was left within my circle. I said, look, it's definitely on top. So that was in the beginning of at the end of November 2010. So there'd been an arrest the back end of October, an arrest the back end of November. So we're moving into Christmas now and it's really cold, it's miserable, there's no money and I was thinking, it's just not working out. Um, we're getting towards Christmas and I'm now selling off assets because I'm thinking not only is it on top but I need to, to fund the garage. So I'm now selling off the cars which have been bought for the garage, bits of engine which are worth money, it's taken out the race car from 2010 sell it all off you know just keep keep the garage going i've got wages to pay i've got i've got a wife and kids who are oblivious to what's going on oblivious. i've got to feed them i've got to keep the rent paid there no one knew yeah how did you keep hold on a second first off how did you meet your wife and how did you keep her out of the loop so yeah well um met my wife in the club which i was selling drugs in <laughs> Because she, 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 she wasn't local, so she just found a club with her friends and came in. So I met her down there. Um, I actually, when I was off my tits, I actually managed to hide it really well. So I didn't always look like I was wasted. So she didn't have a clue. Because I was doing security on the side, 
anything clandestine, I could say, well, it's just a secure job. You know, I've got, to do, I've got a contract for a few days. I've got to meet a client. Ah. You know, so I always kind of use that as a kind of cover plan, which works because it was plausible, more than plausible. Um, so I met her in 1998. So we had our first son in, in 1999, second son in 2005. Um, so keeping it hidden was relatively easy. You know, because when you're making money, no one questions where the money's coming from. You're just having a good time, aren't you? <laughs> it was the difficult part is hiding when you're having a bad time, when you're struggling, when you can't pay the bills, when you can't afford to buy her a present or you can't afford to get, you know, to, to send the kids on a school trip because you've got no money. You know, so yeah, that, that was a difficult part. That was a hard part. You know, so it was starting to go wrong in 2010 really badly. And um, it was going to be a bad Christmas. I'd already known this because everything was getting sold off. She had a nice car. I said, I've got to sell your car. I said, look, the garage is strong. I've got to sell it. And I'll go into that and set up something else I did as a way to try and recuperate some funds. So basically what happened is in, we got to um, September, uh, sorry, December that year. Guy rang up. He said, oh, Rich, I know you're shut down, but it's New Year's Eve. Help me out. He's a friend. I just do bits for him. Like, yeah, mate's right sort of thing. I said, mate, I'm shut down. It's not happening. I said, look, I give him a pal's number. He ain't shut down. He's one of the guys I used to supply. Just go and see him. He said, all right, that's perfect. So I informed them both, set it up, conspired, set that triangle up. Um, On an electronic device. Yeah, rang him up. You know, no text, but still rang him up. We, we were being listened to. We, we knew we were being listened to. Not at the time, but we knew in hindsight. So um, introduced them. And it was New Year's Eve. I sat in my garage working. No customers, freezing cold. It was a, it was a disaster. And um, this guy that wanted it, he rang. I said, I can't find you, mate. I can't get hold of him. I said, well, have you rang him? So well, yeah, he's not answering. So well, just keep ringing him, mate. Then the phone rings again. It's the other guy. So when's your mate going to be? I said, have you rang us? Well, I got a missed call. So well, why don't you ring it back then, mate? I've just had phone calls from both of these guys, haven't I, on the same day. So they've gone and done their thing. I've let them get on with it. Thought nothing of it. That night, I get a phone call at 10 o'clock. The guy that's bought the ounce. I just got out of the cells, mate. What's happened? I got arrested after I've seen your pal. So oh, shit. So they're watching them straight away. So that's the last time I sold a bit of coke. Was December. Not the last time I had an involvement with selling coke was December the thirty first, two thousand and ten. So that was the last bit I did. Now to me, it's clearly that it's definitely on top. So I was just waiting, waiting now for my time. But I've got debts. I've got own money. You know, there's people that need debts paying. I've got a garage. I'm selling off assets. These assets aren't covering what I'm owing. They're not doing any of that because the garage is still open. So I'm having to use that to try and keep that going. I'm thinking, I've got these guys breathing down my neck. And although they weren't, they were really decent because for them, it's on top as well. They're getting people taken down with these other conspiracies. They're, they're suffering similar losses. You know, Will's guys lost a huge amount, a lot more than Will the guy was taking out with three kilos, you know, straight from the Serbs. You know, that's that's on credit. Oh, that's it's got maybe 150 grand straight away. Is he still breathing? Yeah, he is. Yeah, he's all right, I think. <laughs> <laughs> he's okay. We, he was inside with us. Wow. Um, so they've got their own problems. Everyone knows it's on top. And even the guys, I'm presuming even the Serbs at their end are known, right, okay, we, we withdraw, we shut down, we see what goes. But I got bills to pay, so I'm foolishly, I mean, I, I think I can go into this because it was like no further action, so they can't come back in an abusive process. I had a chance to get a crop on the go. I said, 
this is like the, the chance to really save myself to get some money and pay me debts off at least. So um, we found this premises which had been used by the Chinese before. Landlord was savvy, he knew the score, he just wanted a higher, higher rate of rent. Sold my wife's car, told her I needed the money for, for bills in the garage. Got some money in and started funding this, this crop which was going on. It was a big old house as well. It's like potential for like 500 plants. It was it was gonna it was gonna save me, and I, I was in collaboration with a couple of other guys, and um, I ran the chap up that was organising it for me, and this was in the beginning of April, and it's referred to as how's the um how's that engine development coming on that you're building for me? So oh, it's well, yeah, the engine's due to go back in the car soon, which meant to me it's coming down. About a week, yeah, about a week, perfect. Thank you very much. Week goes by, get a phone call. From the guys and they said oh we've got a problem these are the guys the gardeners and i said what's up and i can hear and i can hear a banging in the background I said what's up yeah they're just smashing the door in <laughs> so they'd gone out to the shops to get someone to it they come back and the police have raided the house but they'd missed them yeah luckily they missed the gardeners wow. they picked them up they picked them up later oh. so this this house had reinforced doors on it and cage doors like cell doors on the inside so they took a bit of bashing but i could hear the bashing of the door in the background i thought Thanks, mate. I ring the landlord. So I rang him up. I said, mate, got a problem. Can you just check? Because it was above a shop. So can you check with the shop owner just to confirm what's going on? He said, I already know. <laughs> right, fair enough. So that went through. That was all seized and found. And I was actually arrested for that in um, Gloucester Prison while I was on remand mm. and questioned. So that's the last time I had anything to do with any, any drugs was that, that crop, which never really transpired to anything. How did you launder your money when you was balling? So basically everything that was coming in was audited and it was ploughed into cars. Ploughed into cars because at the time my passion was so out of control. Close to race Jap cars like Evos and stuff like that. So you could put a ridiculous amount of money into a Japanese car and not even know it's in there. You know, you're talking silly money engine builds 15 grand of an engine build you know brakes are going to be four grand for your brakes gearbox five grand you know it starts to soak up the money um but is that a depreciating asset or you know if no, it crashes, usually, it's gone. usually yeah if you crash it's gone yeah yeah you don't want to crash um but it holds if it's if it's developed as a race car structured correctly it's priced differently to a modified car if you plan to a modified car, you lose it. You lose money. But it was a crazy way because I I never bothered to invest in property because I wasn't willing to put my wife and kids into a house which could be taken from them at any given moment and then wonder how the hell did this happen. I wasn't going to be risk making them homeless. So we always rented and we still do. I probably always will. Um, money was just basically filtered into the bank on a very, very low level just to keep things alive, keep things flowing. Because by the time I'd actually got to the point where I've been extravagant with buying cars and having a bit of fun, when it got serious with serious with the, the development of the garage, that was just paid up. So all the money that was made was really thrown into the development of the garage. And there's very little left to launder. Because again, because sign of the times with it coming on top, things were slowing down. So I was lucky I got arrested when I did because it was a lot, we were doing a lot less at that time than we were, say, six months or a year previously. So it's very fortunate. So laundering was very minimal. 
when you were partying and you ran out of drugs but you wanted to like resurrect your high did you ever try headstands <laughs> no no <laughs> no we had one guy who used to get into a cupboard and do a i don't know how he did it now he's quite a big chap he used to actually climb into a, a cupboard under in the kitchen and somehow managed to do a, a a full somersault without jumping but he would go in and roll over in the cupboard and we don't know how he did it to this day he's about six foot two wow. and from now on i never know what why he used to do it because if you go upside down the brain chemicals it all like it does give you a oh, surge yeah yeah we should do headstands we should i'd say save a load of money <laughs> trade secrets keep that one quiet for sales so at this point then where the weed bust has just happened has your wife like said there's like a change in the earth there's something going on can do you want to tell me anything well she could sense because i've been arrested to this point now the, yeah. the actual the funny thing is i would got a the year before, back end of October third, no September thirty first, two thousand and nine, um, we living in a little cottage just outside Bristol, and um, I had a knock on the door about half past seven. It was the police, and uh, so we've got a warrant to search the premises. Of course, my ass falls straight out because oh, this is it. They're here now. This is prior to all of the arrests for the conspiracy. This is going back another year what's this all about um and it showed me the warrant and it said to look for evidence of unexplained wealth was the exact words and i thought that's a bit ambiguous okay please feel free karen there's nothing in the house I, I was quite relieved that we just spent the money the week before um so i let them search and there was one thing i was concerned with and um i'm i'm, I'm quite amicable i don't actually have a problem with the police I got a huge respect for them because of the job that they do, and you know, and the fact is, you know, I would never underestimate someone that's going to take me down. You know, I have to hold them in high esteem. So I'm being pleasant. I'm talking, and in the kitchen, I'm thinking I've got one thing in this kitchen that could really mess me up, and it was a list of a little tick list. It was quite discreet of how I did it, and what I did is on this tick list I had a box of crackers, like the cars cheese crackers you get, little round ones big long square box on the inside flaps i'd have these names written in pencil and a number next to it so when you closed it over you wouldn't be able to stay that was where i just kept my numbers and the police is searching the house and i'm in the kitchen and i'm thinking they're going to get to the kitchen eventually they're going to search the kitchen then they might find this if they're doing it properly they might find this list and that's really going to cause me a problem so um as an officer in there with me obviously making sure i don't do a bunk i wasn't arrested or anything they just searching the house and um, I said, I'm going to make some breakfast. He said, yeah, please feel free. I said, have some crackers and some butter. So I got some butter out of the fridge. And these crackers have been opened for God knows how long. They were well past their sell-by date. But the aim was to just take the box out, eat a makeshift breakfast and bin it, get it in the bin. So I got the crackers out and I'm trying to spread the butter on and the crackers are crumbling because they're not fresh and I'm just trying my best to make them. And I was oh, they must be out of date. Oh, rubbish. What's the missus like, eh? So I took the box out of the cupboard, scrunched it up, threw it in the bin and then left it there. Oh. When they came in the kitchen, they just, they just looked through the kitchen. They didn't really search deeply. Yeah. But that was the only thing in that house which could have maybe come unstuck. So I got it in the bin. And I think I would have fucking eat, eaten it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, that was an option. I thought it would have tasted better than the crackers, to be fair. <laughs> All right, so when did you first realize how serious the charges were against you? Okay, so when 
I was first arrested. So we'd had all these these nickings. There are three people taken down from my lot, uh, October, November, December. And then, of course, then there was this um, cannabis thing, which was isolated, so I didn't really need to go into that. Um, I was arrested on, I think it was April the 12th, 2011. And I just finished this amazing track day on the, on the Saturday, and it was a Tuesday. I sat in my garage. I was at my table. I could look out across the, um, the, the reception, out through the door onto the hard standing, which is where they parked the cars and cleaned them and displayed them and stuff like that. And I just caught a glimpse through the door of these like, three dark cars just roll up, and I just looked at them and thought, yeah, I wonder what that is. And, I, and in the back of my mind, I thought, I wonder. So I didn't think anything of it. And then when I saw the back one had stopped, so the two had obviously gone out of sight, but the back one had stopped. And it's three focuses. And the doors opened up and I saw like bodies getting out of all of them. I thought, this is it. So I actually got up and walked out of the reception. And I walked out and saw these three cars parked up and 12, at least 12 police officers in plain clothes walking towards me. And I said, morning. <laughs> Looked at them all and they said, Rich Jones. And yeah. Walked up to me, he looked at me, he said, we're arresting you for conspiracy to supply cocaine, um, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, okay, anything to say? So we went and sat down in the garage. On a, and then you go into shock, don't you? Yeah. You don't panic or sore yourself. You just go into shock because you're then processing what's going on. You're thinking, right, okay, at last I'm being arrested. It's happening. And... When I was when I first started getting involved in selling drugs, and we're going back to '95, the guy that I used to get my four pills from said to me, "So when you get because he'd been done before, so when you get arrested, you get done for possession, get done with intent supply." He said, "You don't want to get done for conspiracy. That's the big one, and that always stuck." So when they said conspiracy, I thought, "I'm in trouble here. I know I'm in trouble, and I, and I know I'm in a lot of trouble because the guys that I've been dealing with." Periodically over the years, their sentences were getting higher and higher and higher as they're getting caught. They're getting start off with ones, then it's twos, then it's a five year, then it's a seven, then it's a ten. You're thinking the people I know around me are doing less than they're getting tens and twelves. And I'm thinking, God, I'm in trouble there. So yeah, so they yeah, it was when they first nicked me. I was sat in the garage. Did you have a lawyer on standby? No, see this this is the ridiculous thing about I did have someone which I was in my mind I was ready to use because I was subconsciously getting prepared for that. So, and this is the weirdest thing because, and the daft thing I said to the police when I said, oh, can I ring, ring my wife and let, let her know? He said, I think she'll already know. And then it dawned on me that they're clearly searching the house. I thought, oh, the kids, misses. This is the second time the police have been into the house. This time it's more serious. So um, I said, well, fair enough. So that was like, kind of felt pretty bad about that. And then they took me down to the police station and, I said, do you want to get a solicitor? And the weird thing about it is I'm trying to be humble about the situation. Without, I don't want to come across as a criminal. I, I thought I can, I can style this out. I know I can do it. So um, they said, do you want to get a brief? And I said, well, I don't really know anyone because the brief that was recommended to me, I thought might have been a bit dodgy. I thought if I start recommending dodgy briefs, they're going to know, they know I'm guilty. They've just arrested me. They know more than I know about myself. Who am I kidding? So I said, no, nah, just get me anyone. Then I thought to myself, no, nah, let's get these people because they're probably going to do a better job than the, the duty solicitor. So I 
rang on the, the first one bid in the cell, rang on the on the cell door, and I said, hey, I've, I've, I've just remembered the solicitor's name. I said, yeah, what's his name? So I told him the score. And um, this guy came down eventually, um, and we sat down, and then he showed me the, 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 the stuff that they can show you, the disclosure, isn't it, of what they can give you initially. And it's all like, a, I'm finding it all very exciting now, because I'm thinking, this is interesting. Where is it going? Looked at the names, and I thought, I half recognised the names. Um, clearly, they've been arrested and think, oh, God, no, God, not is he? They've got him as well. And you're looking at all these names, think, oh, Christ. That's the worst part, is that it's, in the beginning, yeah. you think it's just you. Yeah. And then you see all your friends getting arrested, and I it know. just spreads and spreads. And you're like, oh, every, yeah. every new one that gets arrested, you're more fucked. And you're thinking, well, I know who's all these, these cells now. It's all this lot, all my mates. Yeah. So you start to thinking, oh, man, I'm in a shit now. I'm really in the shit. All these boys, you know, they're, they're, it's brought on top. We don't know how it's come on top. We just know it's on top. And um, you're just waiting for the interview, aren't you? You're just waiting to get called in for the interview. You do all your, your prints and your DNA and your palm prints and that. So that's all done. And I'm sat in that cell and it's a hot day. It's, it's April. It's hot. I'm trying to look out the window and I'm just, I'm just kind of like, I'm not thinking. I'm there, but I'm not there. My head's not in. I'm just thinking, right, just, just get me head, head in the game ready for this interview. So you get into the, you see your brief and he gives you this disclosure of the names. He says, right, are you ready? Do you want to go in? I'll let him know I'm ready. And the thing of what we're going in now. It's like pre-stage nerves, isn't it? You think this is it, I'm going in. So he, he knocked on the door, yeah, we're ready. And he made sure you, you want, you're ready for this. What do you want to do? I said, well, I've got nothing to hide, mate. I'll, um, you know, I, I won't go into a comment yet. I don't want to feel like, I don't want to make, I don't want to be coming across like someone who's a known criminal. So crazily enough, on the first interview, I kind of like answer some of their questions, but nothing incriminating towards anyone else. I was stupid to think that I was clever enough yeah, to be dangerous. able to beat that. Dangerous. Really dangerous. Yeah. So they're asking questions. And, so, yeah, and my plausible story in my head was like, everything's focused around the garage, around the motorsport. Who's this guy? Why is that guy's car there? I was because he's getting his car fixed. And he was. Everything I did illegally had a legal parallel to it. So if, if I knew someone... <laughs> who was selling coke to, I would be servicing their car. If I knew someone that was buying bits off of me, I'd be taking them on a track <laughs> day. So I had these crazy parallels. And I, in my mind, I thought that would be plausible. So I went through the whole thing. Didn't drop anyone in the ship except for myself. They didn't ask for any other names. They, they had the person they wanted to get. And then we're sat there and they finished the interview after, it was only about three hours. It wasn't too bad. And the coppers, were, yeah, they were, they were all right. You know, I, I, no malice. The guys were pretty decent. You know, they they were once once the the tape was switched off. How would you go with that? All right, everything okay? Do you want to get a coffee? Yeah, I'm fine. Have a coffee and having a chat. We're going to go and find out what we're going to do now. And this bone mind, it must be about half past twelve now. You know, half twelve midnight, maybe maybe later than that. And my mind's now thinking, what's next? I'm presuming I'm going to get remanded in custody. So they came back and they said, stranger things have happened. And what's that? I said, you're, you're being released. I went. <laughs> no way I'm getting bailed they said yeah you, you're getting bailed we, we don't understand why now whether they knew I presume they do know that this other investigation Op Berlin this was Op Kestrel is still going on they, they haven't finished it yet they haven't yet arrested me or they haven't like, started arresting the, the co-defendants they've taken people down but they haven't got they haven't got their main man so I presume they're releasing me now to see what my movements are going to be you know what's happening so they, they bailed me so of course I rock up, they dropped me off back home again and went to a, a wife who was 
somewhat um, miffed about the fact that I've been taken away. And what was that conversation like? Really odd. Well, to be fair, it was like one in the morning, so I just got my head down and got some sleep, and I had to explain to her the next day. I said, oh, I don't know what's going on. I said, oh, what did I use? I said, I think something to do with the garage. I think something dodgy in the garage, like money laundering. I said, they're trying to, and I tried to come up with some plausible reason. I, I just talked shit just to try and get off my back and, and just not, I suppose not involve her too much. So I did my best. I don't think it worked. I just did my best. So um, I went back to work the next day. I opened up the garage, got the mechanics in. Yeah, we're all good. And I sat there and I thought, mm, that's it now. I've been belled until I think May now to go back. So I sort of got through that month and I went up and see my Cody's up in Cheltenham. And I said, oh, I've, I've been nicked. I said, be careful, mate. You know, just be really careful because I, I could go there because I was taking up car parts. We we were trading legitimately anyway, so there's no reason why I wouldn't be there. So I remember we, we had a rolling road in there, like a dyno, and they're really noisy. So I said, let's go and have a chat. So we went into the room above the dyno, which is really noisy. And we sat there and talked. I said, mate, be careful. It's on top. I've been nicked. They're coming for you. They are coming. You've had, you've lost, you've lost the guy on the M4. You've lost Will. They're coming for you, mate. They're coming for, they took the whole lot down for me. Everything's gone. There's no money. We're all done. So just be careful. So another month goes by. I went and signed my bail. They charged me then with conspiracy. So you, know, you wait a few court, pending court dates. So that was in um, May. And then June, big thing in the news. Another massive arrest of when Will and Laura, I can say his name because we're open anyway. Everyone gets nixed, the whole lot. The, the, that was back, I think it was in June at some point. I think mid-June, I don't know the exact date. I was, knew it was happening, he knew it was coming, but they all got remanded. They all got banged up, and I thought, Christ, they really wanted them, because they were the other end of the, of the, of the, of the chain. Um, and I'm looking at all the forums. We were involved with a lot of forums for the car clubs, for the track days, for the racing series. We're all, we did a mass race series in 2010 with, with their company, where I sponsored it. That was huge. you know. So we're kind of, all these people that have been well behind, they're like, Dirty drugs. Oh, I knew they're at it. Where you know all the slate and all the crap starts getting thrown around once you've been arrested. So I'm privy to this thing. God, poor buggers. You know, I've kept mine low key so far. So another month goes by, and I sat in my garage, and it's on the 29th of July. And then uh, another couple of cars pulled up outside the garage, and I thought, "Why are they back here again for?" And they walked in. It's a whole different set of police officers. I thought, "I don't recognise you guys." And they introduced themselves as um, Gloucestershire soccer for arresting you for conspiracy supply cocaine. I thought, so not again. So you, even in Somerset, got me. They said, this is a mistake. I said, nah, this is rubbish, mate. So this can't be right. I said, nope, we're doing, you're getting arrested by us now. But how does that work? I said, same charge or different charge, same circumstances, but we're arresting you. Oh, crap. So off I went to Gloucester in the back of their car. And um, I can't believe this is the second time. So I'm being taken up the motorway now, not down the motorway to Bristol, up to Gloucester, to their police station. And in I go, and I call me briefly again. So oh, I've been nicked again. He said, yeah, I've, I've got word. They've, they've told me I'm on my way. And he said, this time, mate, don't say a fucking thing. <laughs> he said, what do you mean? He said, what, no comment? He said, no, silent. Yeah, all right, okay, no problem. Follow his instruction. So we got into the interview and sat there in front of these two DCs. It would, one of them was actually decent. The other one, he was very arrogant. He was a younger DC 
And I think he's more like a case of a cat that's got the cream. And I'm not going to disrespect mm. him because he did a good job, but I think it was his first investigation that he was heading that. So he was very, very arrogant in, in how he went about things, which was made me feel much better about not saying nothing to him. Because then they were under the assumption that I was going to talk. Because even in Somerset, I just told him a fucking life story. I told him, yeah, X-Forces, give me a break. So I sat down and he said, right, confirm your name. I looked at him. And he looked at his colleague, said, oh, your name has just stared at him on that. <laughs> I didn't move. And I thought, here comes my uh, interrogation practice training now. Wow. So I just looked at him on that. And he said, um, and he looked again at his colleague, he said, is he, is he going no comment? And my brief just went out. <laughs> I looked at my brief for that and I smiled. <laughs> and, he, and he went, <sighs> he deflated in front of me. And he said, date of birth <laughs> and he started going for a list of questions yeah. list of questions yeah. and um, I just sat there and sat there. it was so satisfying <laughs> because I thought I just don't want to go through this all again yeah. so I picked up this thing I sort of look at him look at the other guy look at the it was DVD this I look at the camera and all through the interview so I just look at him look at him look at the camera and that was all I did for about three Good hours and I didn't say a word Arrogance is um, something that can be exploited in the opposition anyway, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And, and I felt very satisfied about that. I, it wasn't because I wanted to be um, a twat. It's just because I felt that at this point, I'd had enough. I've been arrested once already, and this time I wasn't going to play the game. So, yeah, we went through that. I didn't say a word, and it was great. And my brief just looked at me and said, well done. And he, he actually remember him, he showed me something on his notepad. I don't know what he said, but I just laughed. And that annoyed him even more because I just didn't even know it was maybe when I chuckled. Yeah. So um when they went when they went out of the interview, when they shut it down, he said, We thought you were gonna talk. He said he he, he went comment on the last interview. I said, Yeah, but I didn't know the names on that list. I didn't know any of those people. You're talking Serbians, mate. So I don't know who these people are. I don't know, I'm not gonna say nothing. I said, I, I said he said, if I, you know, even in Somerset, it's a whole different kettle of fish. I didn't know these people, you know, so I left, I kept my eyes shot on that one. And, and it was, it was a, obviously the right thing to do. Um, so they, they then bailed me, weirdly enough. Again. And I thought, I've got bailed again. <laughs> so off I went, back home again. And of course, I'm now feeling invincible, aren't I? Because I'm, everything that's happened in the past while, I just seem to be getting away with this. This is fine. So off I go, went home. Um, my wife didn't know about it because they didn't bother searching the house again. They searched the garage again. Uh, it's a big premises to search, but they had another good look. And after that, I went back, opened up again the next day and carried on as normal. But I had to answer the bell the following week to get my phone back. They, I just got another phone replaced after the first arrest. I said, can I get my phone back? Get everything. They said, come back next week. We'll do that for you. So I went back the following week and um, I borrowed my mechanic's van, drove it, chucked it on a pen display, went in there. And um, I said, I'm on a pen display. How long am I going to be? He said, well, <laughs> you said you're probably better off uh, ringing someone to collect your van. We're going to remand you. I said, what? He said, we're going to remand you. I said, why didn't you tell me that? Well, because you wouldn't turn out. I said, but I could have had a chance to say goodbye to my missus and kids this morning at least. So no, we're going to remand you. You bastards. Yeah, you bastards. So uh, I rang the missus and I said, uh, I've got some bad news. I said, I was arrested again last week <laughs> and they're going to remand me in jail. Of course, that was... That's hard, really oh, hard. Man. How does she react? 
upset, tearful because mm. she, we've gone through a lot. And, and I think she went, she rode out all those bad times with me unknowingly what was going on in the background. So she, she lived that feast and famine mm. when she didn't know what was going on. She didn't have to maybe in the back of her mind after the disruption over that year and the finances changed, she might've had an idea. Um, but no, it wasn't, wasn't an easy phone call. You know, so they, they stuck me in the cells and they took me to um, Gloucester Magistrates Court. Or I sat in the uh, um, cells all day with some lad who'd been on the run and he, he was suffering with a few um, uh, hygiene issues, shall I say. Um, so yeah, yeah the, the judge and the, well, the magistrates, clearly they can't deal with that. It's too big for them. So they said, we're going to remand you until we get to Crown. So this was the 5th of August, the 4th of August, um, 2011 reminded into Gloucester. So I just really, that was my first time into prison then. And that was it. And in I went in old Victorian jail. And you kind of like mesmerized, you shell shot, you just, but immediately went in there, I switched my mentality to a squatty mentality of that kind of like, right, I've done this before. I've got to my regiment. It's a very stag environment, a lot of men. It's going to be a batting order of some kind. I said, it's, it's going to be whatever's through those doors. I shall see what happens. But luckily, it was about seven o'clock at night, so they're all banged up. So we got moved, taken onto the induction, which is quiet, nothing going on. Looking around, so three landing sites. I thought it's just how it looks on the telly, but the TV doesn't like tell you about the smells or the echoes or, or the eerie silence when you move on to when when it's quiet. They said, well, "Do you want to um, share it with this guy?" I said, "Well, I don't smoke, and he smokes." I said, "But." rather than him than someone else that I don't know. So I go in with him. So we, we paddled up together and all I remember was the thing that he did was he was coming off of alcohol. So they were prescribed him some Librium. Now, because the meds were shut, they had to give it to him through the hatch, through the door. And um, he went to the hatch and he's an old hat. He's been in and out a lot. He knows how it works. And he, they passed him this medication and um, he cheeked it. He did the old, showed him his mouth, but he, he stashed it. And I didn't know at the time. So the healthcare assistant's gone. And he's sat and he's looking at me and he's doing something on the on the unit. And I thought, what are you doing, mate? He goes, oh, I'm just going to crush this up. I said, why? So I'm going to sniff it instead. So why? So because I get a hit off it. Why? He said, because that's what I want to do. I think, oh, right, okay, no worries, mate. So remember the first thing I saw was him crushing up this, this pill, whatever it was, and then sniffing it with a bit of old rolled up paper. And I thought... Work on the prison, Rich. So it's an old jail, um, bunk beds, mattresses like this. You know, so you're, you're like on a hammock, aren't you? Pillars are non-existent, like a slab of rubber and an old hospital sheet, which is about the size of a napkin because I was using them for lines. <laughs> so it was like trying to sleep under a tea towel um, with an old, old, the whole blank, the blankets with the holes in them, like the mesh blankets. That was my, well, I was relieved the fact there was a toilet in there and a TV. I thought, well, this ain't so bad, is it? Um, so yeah, so my memory of the first night was he drank a lot of tea and he smoked a lot and he pissed a lot. And my head was right by the toilet. Oh, So you imagine oh. that going again. All I could smell is his Did urine. Did you have to give him a no flush instruction because you were trying to sleep? Well, I'd rather he flushed because he drank that much tea. It was quite strong. Yeah. The flavor, the smell, I could almost taste it. It was that strong. So um, <sighs> my first thought was, the, was passive smoking and inhaling the, the fumes from his urine, yeah. which is great. Um, so I was yeah. sold up with people who had um, 
prostate problems yeah. and we'd have to have that discussion as to whether do you want me to just piss and not flush the can yeah or do you want would you rather just you know so i don't wake you up and I'm like yeah well, that's funny <laughs> funny sir because when i got into my next prison the guy show had prostate problems and he was up all night just dripping and i thought and he would spend hours on the toilet trying yeah. to have a uh, trying to have a piss and i thought yeah. well, are you gonna start or finish mate and he couldn't even, oh what are you doing mate <laughs> did you have to figure out how to make earplugs to sort of drown it out yeah, do you know what? In the end, I just put my head under me, under my under my blanket because he was smoking that much. We we paddled up for three no, three three weeks. We we moved up onto the threes and then it was really hot. And we could have seagulls doing their thing every morning because it's right by the docks. And he didn't stop smoking. So three weeks, I always put my head underneath the thing at night because it was that much smoke was that heavy. Um, but so, the funny so, thing is, sorry, I'm gone. So it like. Did you have to have a discussion with him to stop smoking at some point? I said it's too much. Yeah. I said I've got to move pads. I said I've got to get a different pad. I can't stand the smoking. It's doing me edit. Yeah, it causes um, a lot of fights where I was that non-smoker yeah, smokers. It's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. Well, the first morning, I, I, I got out of the um, uh, the pad in the morning on the first day in jail. Of course, the, the wind comes alive, doesn't it, in the morning? So I've gone out and well, I need a shower. I'm, I'm stinking. I've been in the courts all day in, in my same clothes. I need to have a shower and get into my... You know, I've got these ridiculous prison tracksuits which don't even fit so I walked into the shower I had a scrub and as I'm walking out I see my Cody um, Lawrence and uh, and looked at me he went he went oh my god <laughs> we just had a massive hug he said what happened and we had a good old chat he said look can't stop now we've got to get everything sorted we've got to do menus and everything else so we'll meet in the chapel why do you want to meet in the chapel he said, because that, that's where we'll meet so I thought alright I'm not a religious person all right, I'll go down the chapel and meet you then. So they, that was on the, the Sunday morning, obviously. So they called down the chapel. Anyone for chapel? So I went down there and, and I got in and, and I went in and he wasn't there. And it was the most depressing hour and a half of my life because I'm in prison. And no disrespect to anyone with any faith, but I'm in a church, in a prison, in a church with no one I know. And I don't know why I'm here. And that's when it realized to me that I'm, I, I'm in a whole different environment now. This is just not for me. So I eventually bumped into him and I saw him and, him and Will were padded up together and um, both smoking like troopers. But with, they were on, we're on different floors. So what happens is in Gloucester, they would, when the association, had, on one night they would open up um, one set of floors. On the other night they'd open up a different set of floors. So you'd have alternate association. So what I found was these guys were on a different night to me. So I'd have to be spending half the night looking for the flap, chanting them through the door, gassing. But when it comes to exercise, we're all out together. I remember then there was myself, Will, Lar. Um, the other guy was, and, and the Serb were on a different wing. I think the other guy was still in Wood Hill. When he got pulled with the three keys, he was in Wood Hill because he he, that's where he's around. It was local for him. The Serb, Vladi, was on a different wing. He was working on the servery. But I don't recognize his face from the photographs when I asked. Yeah, that's that's um that's the other end. <laughs> so yeah, that was a weird one because none of us had done been in prison before. It was all first offence, you know. So we were and and we were just scratching our heads, thinking, "How has this come about? How we got arrested? How, where, where's how did we fuck up? You know, where where has it come from?" And we were all kind of speculating about how it's come about and why we've been arrested. I mean, it did, in hindsight, I've got a good idea why. I don't know. There were informants on my end from from my end of the market there were informants involved several that 
two that I'm pretty sure of, one of them's inside now, and a couple that I'm not so sure about, which anyone doesn't get nicked with your organisation is under the spotlight, aren't they? There's one guy, I know he's not, we speak, and I know he's definitely not him. But there are others which you have to think, well, they have to be suspect. There's a lot of conspiracies going on within our circles about how it's come about, but the truth is there are some informants involved. There has to be, that that level usually is, normally. So you had to go back to court? Yeah, so the the process then, so really, so we were, the aim was trying to get bail. So this was through um, August, and during that time, there's all these riots kicking off around the UK. If anyone remembers, there was these, a huge amount of riots going off in London, I think Birmingham, maybe Bristol. And I don't know why they were rioting, but they were. And the police, or so my brief said, let's wait for the riots to finish. They're going to need some room in the local jails. Then we'll go judging chambers or try and get you bail. But yep, fine. I've gone through four weeks on my round. I was getting into me jail time now. And I'm, I got onto a course. I was doing a cookery course. Not because I wanted to learn to cook, because I got to eat something that wasn't the shite that was coming from the kitchens. What was the shite? I was horrendous. It was all, they, do you know what? In Gloucester, they still had the old trays, which they, they've banned, the metal trays. Um, it was just overcooked, stewed, steamed. It, it had been spent too long on the hot plate. To be fair, Gloucester food was much better than some of the other jars I've been to. Which is really bad, but the food we got to cook on this cooker course was fresh. You know, mm. we got to make a lasagna or something else, and you made it yourself. So I was having a really good time. I was enjoying this cookery course, <laughs> and um, I went back to me to the wing phone and rang up my wife. I said, "Oh, you know, just been cooking." She said, "Oh, have you heard the news?" I went, "What's that?" I said, "You've got bell." What do you mean? I said, "You've got bell." This is on the eighth of September. I said, "So I'm still here." I said, "No, you, you've, it's been granted, but they just need to get um, get your passport into a police station, and then you." Your mum and your dad are going to put up a surety. Not, they don't have to give them money, but a surety of seven and a half grand each. And we got to put up 25 grand. And then the amazing thing was, was a, a couple that came to my track days. They put up 10 grand. They didn't wow. have to do that. Wow. They actually said, no, we'll, we'll cover the other 10 grand for you. I thought, wow, how nice is that? Didn't even really know them that well. Wow. did a few events so they they covered the balance my mum and dad covered 15 between they covered the other 10 which I'm really oh. grateful for that so that got me out of jail so I was released again the next day. yeah so I was released on bail on in that September three dad, bails yeah so my dad <laughs> my dad picked me up and I said alright I said alright dad yeah so what do you want to do he said McDonald's please dad <laughs> I want to fill it a fish <laughs> so we went so I was bailed then and that kind of then opened up the door for for those of us that weren't bound to rights i.e. the ones which weren't caught with any goods in hand. Um, Lawrence was trying to get bail himself. Now, because I've been given bail, that gave him grounds for bail. His assurance was much higher than mine, so Laurie got bail about a month later. So the next thing then was really was, was we were given conditions, curfews on the tag, seven till seven. Um, the garage for me then was shut down. That was gone. Yeah, the business was, was collapsed, folded. It was just left. I had nothing lost everything and that's the nature of the game isn't it you know you, you, you come out with nothing so yeah that's when you start, start looking at the process of damage limitation you assess right what have I lost how bad is this what about money that's owed well we ain't gonna worry about that because everyone that's owed money to is inside so that kind of unwritten rule is like well look you're, you're gonna do your time mate you know you, you, you're looking at your pleas you're looking at what have they got on me 
So you start looking at your plea case management, your initial hearings at the courts. And the first one I think was in November. And I remember turning up to this um, court hearing. I was there. Lawrence was there. The guys that had been on, off of my conspiracy, nobody was remanded. They're all there. We're not allowed to speak. We're sat looking at each other, just smiling, <laughs> just shaking our heads. And you know, it's terrible, isn't it? We were going to the, into the, um, uh, the, the courtroom and we we're all deciding what to do. And one of the guys from mine, um, when his house was searched, we didn't know, we didn't all the details of anyone else's searches. We didn't know what's going on. And myself and my Cody on my left, and there's a few of us in there and we're sitting next to the other guy. And I can't say his name, he got a not guilty then, so I can't really say his name. Of course he was innocent. Um, when they were reading out the charges of everything else, when they read out the, the, the charge of um, this chap's house, and they reeled off a list of all this different ammunition that was found. And we're thinking, well, I'm not there to look at me. And I was looking across at him thinking, what have you been doing? But it wasn't what it sounded like. Um, his late father was ex-forces. Oh. And it was just an empty case of this. Mm. An old nine millimeter. It was individual rounds, which we call them buckshe rounds. When you're in the forces, if you lose a round, you get charged up to a month's wages. So if you're on the, when you're on the ranges, you steal a round, you nick one, and you stash it because they're worth a weight in gold. They're worth at least a month's wages. So you hold on to these spare rounds. You know, you're not supposed to, you to make a declaration that you haven't got anything on you, but you do. So these were just spare rounds that his old man had just accumulated. They were, they were old. They were probably out of date. wouldn't work. So, of course, he's ran off these, uh, these rounds. We're thinking, like, oh, what's he into? So we're caught with like edging away from him a little bit. I don't want to be associated with you. <laughs> so we've then looked at all of our pleas and the majority of us that weren't caught with anything in hand, which is most of us, we're going to go not guilty. You know, despite what the advice was, we're not guilty. Um, but poor me, I've got two charges, two conspiracies against me. And this created the, the conundrum for the, for the courts of like, how do we proceed with this? Because we've got two... How do you proceed with Mr. Jones? He's got two cases. Now, do we go for the, the, where there's a severance or join there? Do we run two different trials? And Mr. Jones appears on both trials. And as a good old scrap on both trials, and see how we get on. Or do we have two counts on one trial for him at the risk of confusing the jury with two different counts? So what they did in the end was we maintained innocence to the point where we went, we ran a trial and we, we were turning up on bail. And in the end, they decided to run two trials, but they put me on the trial with the Yacht Berlin guys, i.e. Um, Williams, Lot and Lawrence's. And um, we ran the trials where I ran two counts of conspiracy. So count one, which would be the Yacht Berlin, count two was Oper Operation Kestrel, which was mine. So they basically delivered the trial, it, talking about both conspiracies on the trial, i.e. the bigger picture, which was required to get the conviction on me because they needed to find out strategically where I fitted into that conspiracy. I, am I part of Berlin, conspiring with them, or am I a customer of Operation Berlin, conspiring with my guys? So that's how it was. It's quite complicated. So yeah, it was, it was a... A difficult process because you've got guys which are remanded, guys which have, which have pleaded guilty because they've been found in possession, and it was damage limitation. And when I took my turn to stand in the box, it was one of the most 
exciting, exciting <laughs> times I've had because <laughs> it was like, this is it. Everything hinges on this. I find it really, and I, I, I did okay. It didn't help out in the end, but I did okay considering the, the, the evidence that was against me because what you don't see when you're sort of building up towards the trial is the, what they've really got on you. Mm. And when you first see that jury bundle, and you see like the evidence which is given to the jury and the whole presentation of everything they've got, all the cell site analysis and the, the color charts and the, 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 the surveillance photographs put in there next to it and how they cherry pick all these phone calls to make it look like it's all clandestine. And you think, wow, they've really got us fucked, really in a lot of trouble now. So yeah, you, you kind of like, that's when you think I should have gone guilty because <laughs> I look this is maybe look really bad really bad you know you you see your phones that they attribute towards you where you 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 say well i accept that i had a second phone because this phone was my clean phone i from my company this phone was my spare phone for my friends and family or my friends you know and, and but why was that phone thrown away after this arrest you know, all this sort of stuff so yeah you see that and you think well it's got a, it's too late to put a plea in now to see out to the end you know so you battle it out how was it with your missus during this period? It was stressful because my mental health has never been that good since going to forces anyway. I was a bouts of depression and anxiety. So, you know, I was kind of fighting with my own demons inside emotionally. And the weird thing about my missus being, a, I suppose, a testament to how good she is. She focused on our kids. She allowed me to focus on our kids because I knew that you know, that sense of pending doom. You think, well, I'm going to probably go away in a few weeks' time, whenever the trial finishes in seven weeks' time. It was seven weeks. I'm going to go down. So really, she said, well, look, if you go away, you're potentially going to get a few years. So it's important that we maintain normality for the kids mm. and we just don't let them know that, that we'll worry about that when we get to it. And that was a very strong thing to do because she kind of held on to that. Mm strength to to make sure the kids because my youngest was only five at the time the oldest was like 12 or 11 or 12 so it's really difficult on them and it has it hasn't we haven't come through this unscathed i'll put it that way mm. so it was difficult very very difficult but that's the selfish thing isn't it when you're involved in that world you don't think for a minute how's it going to affect my kids you think i'm okay i'll be fine but you don't see the collateral damage so you think you've done good on trial then you see the evidence against you. And how long does the jury take to make a decision? It's the longest three and a half days of my life. So they've gone out to deliberate. And of course, we've all, we've all done our best to try and create our defense. You were thinking, we've given them, we've, we've, Lawrence was in the stand for about a day and a half. He was in there for a long time. Vlad was in there for a long time. We've all tried to deliver our defense as best as we can. Um, and those three days are horrible because you, you you might get a moment where the jury have got a question. They might want to rephrase something. So you're kind of like, you're hovering around the court all day mm. and you're waiting for, please, everyone with the court five in the case of Mr. Jones, please return to the court. You think, oh my God, they've made their mind up. Because mm. we've all got our bags packed and ready, ready to go down. So we're like, it's like the departure line to Bristol Airport. We're just sat over our bags in the, in the holding room. And we go back out and say, oh, we just got a question. Oh, this isn't it. Do we keep going? So in the end, we knew the problem we had was one of the jury was going on holiday on the 19th of May. So, which I think was a Saturday. It was a Saturday. 
So we knew the judges said, well, no matter what, we'll be done by the 19th, i.e. the Friday. We'll be done by the Friday because we know you got to go We'd already lost one jury member because he'd, he'd made a racial slur against one of my co-defendants. So he was kicked off. Oh dear. We're down to 11. Couldn't go down to another one. So we knew that we couldn't afford to lose another jury member because it was going to mean introducing a new jury, retrial, however that works, I don't know. So we knew that whatever happens by the 18th, we're going to have a verdict. So yeah, they came in on the, it was me and my wife had just gone to get something to eat for, for lunch. Court was adjourned. We got some lunch on the Thursday, just around the corner. And uh, we came back in and I think about two o'clock, half two, said, can everyone return the jury? You know, that was it. So we sat there, five of us, and there was um, Serb, Lar, me, two two defendants on the left-hand side. And um, I said, how do you find, uh, and I would give them, how do you find so-and-so of count one? This was the count one first. You all stand up and you've got the public gallery across to the right. Guilty. And you see his wife completely go to pieces. Of no oh. fact, sorry, his wife had been belled, so I don't think she was there. Laura was next to me. How do you find so-and-so? Guilty. And his whole lot just lost the plot. I just find Mr. Jones not guilty. As I, at first what? I prayed for, yes, count one, not guilty. Get in there. <laughs> so it goes across to my, the other two guys, not guilty, not guilty. I thought, wow, how did you find Mr. Jones count two? Guilty. Oh, oh. fuck. It's like a Homer moment. I was like, yeah, don't. It's really bad. And then I look across at my wife and she's like, you can see, see her eyes full of that. And I think she oh. said she's, I spoke to her afterwards or once she visited, so she actually passed out in the gallery. Mm which was bad. Um, and then you got that really, really sad moment where the judge says, right, those of you not guilty, off you go. Thank you for your time. You so some know, some so were able to completely leave. <laughs> yeah, they walked out that way through the through the sort of door you walk into, oh. die out to the freedom, and the rest of you take them down. Oh, crap. So there's me and Lawrence and Vlad just off we go down through the back door now, not the way we came in. <laughs> And I looked across and my wife had sort of waved at that and I'd, I'd already, my mentality and I just started to change it straight away. I thought, well, I've been in before, did just a few weeks on around, I know where I'm going, but this time I'm going into Bristol. It's a different gel, a different gel. So um, we went down the back, back into the cells again. I thought, I'm familiar with this, I'm okay. And Lawrence is just like, head in his hands. Vlad, don't you really give a toss? He's been on my mind all the time anyway. He's, doing, he's just getting on with it. And then we're waiting for the bus then. Um, to get us off to Bristol, to be remanded in Bristol. So um, Vlad had moved from Gloucester to Bristol prison. So I think all of our co-defendants which were involved were now moving, moved to Bristol to, 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 to consolidate them ready for sentencing in a few weeks' time. So um, we got into Bristol prison and it was again, it was late. Now Lawrence, I think, went onto a different wing, went to A-wing. And again, I just flicked into a sort of veteran mentality and they asked a question when you get into the admissions, when they're running you through reception, say, all the normal healthcare needs. So have you served in the force? Said, yeah. Oh, who are you with, mate? And these guys think, oh, tank regiment. And you think, oh, half these guys in here are ex-forces. Really? Yeah, a lot, a lot of staff wow. will, 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 will move on to a, some form of security. And a lot of them have, have been in the force of, of, to some point. I think that's got to count for something at some point, hasn't it? That's yeah, yeah, ex-forces, blah, blah, blah. Um, you get a bit of food, you get taken onto the wing. This time it was G-Wing, four landings high, bigger than Gloucester. And I'm thinking, that's a big old place, this. 
I've heard a lot about it. I drive past it most days going to work, look up at the, and I look down the road, look at the job thinking, one day I'm going to be in there. You know, it's inevitable. Here I am, I'm back, I'm in there at last. So into the cell with this guy with the prostate problem, he's um, <laughs> up all night pissing. And then the weird thing is the next day, it was a Friday, nice day, and I thought, I'm going to get some exercise. They called exercise, I'm going to get some fresh air. So I've gone out and there's only three of us on the yard and there's a couple, yeah, three other lads and I'm walking around the yard. I've, I've done, lost the yard, it's small, you walk around in an anti-clockwise direction, just taking the fresh air. And it's just one guy's chatting to me. So what are you in for? So I've just been done for conspiracy to supply coke. He said, yeah, I'm on remand waiting for that. So I really, he's telling me all about his case and that. And I thought, wow, it's, it's, I said, I don't know, mate. He said, he said, what are you looking at? I said, I don't know. So maybe could be 10 years. You know, I'm not, not really sure. So you don't want to get 10 years for that. I said, he said, what were you caught with? I said, I wasn't caught with nothing. No money, no drugs. He said, well, are you going to get 10 years? So it was conspiracy, mate. Leading role. No, I don't believe you. So he just peels off. He starts chatting to his other guy. And then I keep walking around. He comes and joins me again. He goes, yeah, well, I didn't do my thing anyway. It's just all rubbish. I said, yeah, whatever, mate. I left it at that. And then I'm on the wing. And then the following day, I'm walking around. To go to the, I think I'm going to get someone to do the, the menu for the for the canteen. Or sorry, for the for the servery. And I was looking at me really weird. And I'm thinking, this ain't right. It's a bit odd. And then I was out on exercise on the bigger yard. And then people just staring at me as I'm walking past. And again, what the fuck's going on here? They think you're a cop. Yeah. Yeah, they thought I was undercover, didn't they? Yeah. Fucking idiots. <laughs> so so I was walking along and then the weirdest thing was, there's a guy outside with a, with a member of staff. He's on litter pick. I just want to meet Cody. So I don't know him, but I recognise his photograph or his face from his photograph on the, the interview. And I said, and I've met him once in the past. I said, oh, mate, come here. He said, oh, when did you get in? I so I got in last night or so two days ago. What wing are you on someone? G-wing. So get yourself onto B-wing. We're all on B-Wing. So what do you mean we're all? So we're all on B-Wing. <laughs> right, okay. So I spoke to the staff. said, so like, get me on B-Wing. I said, yeah, we'll wait till space comes up. A week went by. Me, all these guys are just like avoiding me, looking at me there. And so I thought, I didn't know they thought I was undercover. Didn't know this. Not a good situation. No, to be no, in. It's, no, it's not good. Um, so eventually I got over on the B-Wing and, and it was like, I never felt happy to land on a wing. Not because of coming off a G-Wing, but I walked in there and said, guy, I won't say his name. And he's downstairs. He looked at me and he smiled. I said, fucking hell, it's been a long time. It's been like 15 years since I've seen you. It's the guy that got me the job working with Oasis at Nebworth. The one that's serving wow. up all their coke. Wow. He's on remand. And I went, fucking hell. He said, Look, and he's a unit. No one fucks with him. You know, he's a big old piece of work. Said, and straight away I thought, oh, I'm all right now. He said, yeah, get you up here. He said, we, we, got, you, um, we got you a room sorted out. Because Vlad, the Serb who was there, he moved onto a different wing because he was going to get a job in admission. So he moved. So you can have Vlad's cell down on the ones with us. It was on Spurs. So you had like, I think it was eight cells on this. And it was on B-Wing. So it was, it was a smaller wing. It was better. Single cells. So I walked onto this wing and looked around. And I saw the guy got done from the motorway. Free keys. He's like, oh, mate, how you doing? Um, the cell next to him thought, where do I know you from? Oh, yeah, I used to, used to chuck him coke down in Oxford. He's on my man for something else. The other guy that had, um, the litter picker, he was on another cell. 
So I, and the guy that I used to do security with, he was in another cell. So on that spur, there were like, what, four of us that I knew out of the eight. And I felt great. I thought, this is fine. They got me a job straight away on the servery. So I was eating well. So then for me, I thought, so right, this is how it works. This is how gel really is. You know, you know someone, you get a little touch and it changes the dynamic of the whole thing. Completely. There's nothing better than someone recognizes you and you're like, yeah. And then they tell everyone, yeah, he's all good. Yeah, exactly that. And, and even though, even when some of the guys from G-Wing came across onto B-Wing and I was taking the, the names of the food orders. So they say, who are you? And cross the name. I said, you're on this, that, and that. And this guy would look at me. I remember his name. His surname was Thor. He had it tied on the side of his neck and he had a real issue with me. And he said, he said, you're undercover, aren't you? I said, no, I'm not, mate. And I was sat next to my co-defendant. He said, no, he's not, mate. Said, yeah, he's definitely undercover. So go and ask the guys on the survey. And there was like all the people that I know. And they said, no, he's definitely not undercover. I've been working with him for years. If he is, he's really good at it or really, <laughs> or really bad at it because you know what he's doing. So, um, but he still wouldn't have it. He was that ignorant that he'd made his mind up that I was undercover. But that's the paranoia he lived with on remand. So we were there for um, five weeks waiting for sentencing. So that was a, you're just waiting and I'm trying to put it, put, put it together in my head. Like, how long am I going to get? I'm looking at the guidelines, looking at the, the, the roles and the, the, the categories and everything else. And I'm thinking, well, do you think catches with that much Coke? Like one, maximum one and a half kilos, maximum. I'm thinking, right, okay. But then I think, well, did they take into consideration purity? Did they go by volume? Did they look at an overall picture? And I'm thinking, well, right, I'll put myself in category two. I am leading role. Category two, right, that's 10 to 13 years. No, nine to 13 years. I thought, all right, I'm going to get about 11 or 12 then. They're going to take a bit off being a squaddy. They give me a result. So in my head, I'm thinking about 11 years-ish. So we go for we go for sentencing on the first one was on the 22nd of June. We get there. Is your missus at that one? Yeah, yeah. As was my dad and everyone else. Oh. And my friends. We got there and it's all, we have to adjourn this one because we haven't got the post-sentence, the pre-sentence reports through. So it was adjourned for another week. So we went back again the following week on the 29th. We got in there and then we were, we were this first time we were all sat together now. People that had, um, pleaded guilty but weren't remanded there were people there all the conspiracy so there were like I think there was all of us I think the whole 13 of us were there bar one one guy did the one that got done on the New Year's Eve one of my lot he'd done his time and finished he was like done and dusted license completed the lot and he was finished so he wasn't there obviously there were 12 of us in the dock and we were lined up and they're writing our sentencing there and they're looking at these they're going through the whole conspiracy and the judge does, doesn't say you're having 10 years, take him down. He, he reels off a load of spill as to why he's come to this conclusion and why he's come to this length of sentence. And you're thinking, well, he's going to get to me. And he, then he did, um, he did all the boys from Berlin first. My mistake sentencing was split because the second trial hadn't happened until August. So what they had there was, was, was me and all the guys from Berlin. So there were about, there were eight of us there. Still quite a few. So, yeah, the second trial, which he'd scheduled, hadn't even started. That was linked with my, with my co-defendants. So, yeah, that's something else. Um, so we're still all sat there waiting for sentencing. And he says, right, you can have, you're going to have five. You're going to have seven. You're having 10, but we're going to take one off. You've been on my man for a year, so we're going we're gonna to bump it up a little bit. Yeah, Mr. Mr. Lawrence, you can have 18 years. And then, then Vlad, you're having 18 years. And then so right, Mr. Jones. And he goes on about all this 
he's uh, rattling away about a few things and he says um he says your mitigation he says uh you try to mitigate that you served in the in the forces for your country and we uh, we recognize your service he said however your biggest mitigation would have been to uh to to, to plead guilty in the in the face of overwhelming odds <laughs> and i thought you call it what are you saying mate you're saying i haven't got a I haven't got the right to run a trial. So he gave me an extra year for being an idiot and running a trial base. So I would have got 14. He says, so that based on that, I'm going to give you 15 years. And I thought, did you say 15 years? Looked across at the gallery to my wife, my dad, my friends and everyone like that. They're just staring at me. I went, and he said, take him down. I said, I'll call you later. <laughs> That's all I could say. I could see the devastation in them. You could see that they just lost their son, husband, friend, but they don't, they're not thinking do half. They're thinking 15 years. Flat. Yeah. They're thinking that's it. My kids were in there, obviously. And my poor wife at the time was then thinking, how am I going to tell the kids? that dad's just going to get sent away for what is the equivalent of more than, more than they've been alive at that time. That's a lifetime for them. What was that phone call like? That was a tough one. That was a tough one. So basically we were in Bristol. So, I don't know how many times I said 15 years in my head, walking down the stairs, walking into the cells. It didn't help when people say, oh, mate, I'm really sorry to hear about that. I said, don't say, don't, you're not, not helping. It's 15 years, it's 15 years. I'm you dress it up. Um, yeah, I didn't get to ring her for a couple of days because trying to get onto the phones is difficult and money wasn't good. So um, she booked the visit, I think. She came in and saw me. But I think within about a week, we were being sent off to our Cat B mm. up in Loudoun Grange. So those of us who got more than, say, 10 plus went to Loudoun. Those who got less went to a, probably Earlstoke or something like that. So myself, um, Mother Cody, I won't say his name, went off up to there with, um, with Lawrence and Vlad. Didn't come straight away. And I don't know why. There was something outstanding, I think, which they had to address so off went to Loudoun and um, what a change. Private prison. We'd heard it was this land of milk and honey. This jail is private run by Serco. Even my brief has said, if you get to go anywhere, get to Loudoun Grange you'll, you'll, and you'll understand why when you get there. So it's 2012. Um, we arrived up in Nottingham and uh, you know, three and a half hours on a sweat box in a really hot summer's day. And you get in there and you, you go on to, you, you, this is big boys jail now. It's not cat A, so there are bigger jails, but this is a big boys jail. You know, people doing big lumps have come down from the category A's. Um, people doing 10 years plus, you know, average sentence length is probably about 20 years in there. Some big people in for big conspiracies, importations, lifers, you know, attempted murders, everything. And we got in there and we're on the induction wing and straight away it was, nice in comparison although the food was diabolical because it was a we were on a default menu because we hadn't chosen our menu so they had to because of dietary requirements and everything else had to give us a, a vegan option which i was very unhappy about but it did the job um so um me and my friend got into the cell and he was quite a big chap at the time 23 stone and there's not a lot of room in these cells to move around but the, the most amazing thing was we found a, there was a phone in there in the wall like a normal phone you have and uh, I looked at it and I said, I said yeah, that's, that's the phone. We've, we've, we're issued a PIN number and you, you apply to get your, num your names, uh, your phone was put onto this PIN. You, you, dial, you dial the PIN, that says your account, and you dial the number you want and you ring out, you ring home. 
So rather than standing on a wing phone, queuing up with people screaming and shouting, you can ring home from there. And that was amazing. And, and then toilet was in the cell, which was not great because the vegan menu didn't help my Cody when he got for a, a shit everyone at half past seven. And I'm in the cell. We're still locked up at the time. There's no escape. So I remember when my face pressed up against his window trying to breathe air for this little mesh. Eyes were stinging and everything. That was really bad. And within three weeks, because we were enhanced, we moved on to the enhanced wings. So we got onto J-Wing, which is a nice lot three. And that's when you realize how comfortable it is. Single cells, shower in your cell. What? Yeah. You walk in, it's like an ensuite. Well, it's not an ensuite. It's, you shower, you've got a, a, a cubicle, which has got your toilet, your sink, and your shower. Then you've got your bed, you've got a unit with your TV. And the TVs are plumbed into the wall. You've got your, your, your digital TV, all your standard digital channels. Sky was on there and a prison channel which did movies every night. It showed a different movie. It was amazing. So my introduction to J-Wing was, it was a hot summer's day, but back July, the back end of July, yard was out. Every, every wing had its own yard with its pull-up bars and dip bars, everything else. And I walked up to it and I saw people sat outside, led outside on their mattresses, sunbathing with MP3 players. I looked and I thought, this is going to be all right. If I've got to spend a few years doing this, then I'll do it like this. And it was like that. So we, we were on J-Wing for a while, which was good. Now what we found was there was a better wing to head for. Now, uh, Vlad had by this time had landed with Lawrence onto J-Wing with me. Uh, my other Cody that I was sharing with, he, didn't, he wasn't enhanced, so he didn't get to go to J-Wing with me. He went to an un unenhanced block bit more lively but when he got us in hands he got straight down to a p-wing which is house block five which was the newer house blocks and i got down there in october 2012 and it changed again it was like i thought j-wing was good but this is something else the, the cells are bigger the people on there are sensible there's no idiots on there just people just doing their time you know big names right kenny noy on there you know from the from the the, the murder thing back in the 90s we just got on a few big players from, from the drugs game. And it was like, it was a different world. It was calm. You, you saw us like walk on and say, oh, do you need any for me? You know, we've got food in the fridge. There's fridges on the wings. Oh, yeah, help us off some food. So we'll, you open it up and everyone's got their own little shelf. They've got their boxes labelled and no one's nicking nothing. Got microwaves on the wing. Yards open all day. And that was it. So you started doing your job. Did you interact with Kenny Nye or have any Kenny Nye stories? A little bit. No, no stories. No, we we, we did a bit of training together and, and he, Kenny was really quiet. He would just spend most of the day sat on the yard with his MP3 and reading the paper, just soaking up the sun. And he was in good shape, mind. He would do the gym and he would, he would train hard, but he just got left alone. He, he interacted with people that he wanted to, spoke to people that he wanted to. To be fair, he just got on with it. You know, he, he was just another guy in jail. You know, there there was a few people in there which you know that everyone's on their best behaviour, aren't they, when they're inside? Everyone's behaving because they want to go home. They don't want to get involved in politics and start you know, getting in trouble. So, yeah, Kenny was all right. He just did his, he just kept quiet, did his thing. He'd been in for like 20 odd years already, hadn't he? So 20, 25 years. So he'd done a bit of time. Was he going to get out at some point? Yeah, he's out now. Oh, he's out he's now? He's out, yeah. He got moved off to a cat sea while I was there. Then I think he's got Cat I think he got released maybe last year, year, year before. Who did he allegedly kill? Oh, I can't remember the name of the guy. It was the, it was the M25, they're known as the M25 killer, wasn't it? He stabbed a guy 
a road rage incident. Road he rage. Stabbed him. Yeah. Wow. Can't remember the chap's name now. Yeah. Did anyone try and scam you? Or in there? Yeah. No, it was weird because we had our own scams going on. It's quite good. Not not against not against the lads. So when you get a trusted job, I, I went down the route of trying to work in trusted jobs because I didn't get money sent in. And I thought if if my wife is struggling as it is outside, the last thing I'm gonna do is badger her for money. So I need to fend for myself in it financially. So I got a job. My first job was working in the block down in it's called American the Hole, isn't it? Or the CSU or the yeah. I, whatever they want to call it. But it's well paid. Locked it was down, yeah. Yeah, it's better paid job. So I was on I think about 40 quid a week for a prison wage. That's pretty good. It's huge. You know, but Loudon Grange is weird. They pay you to go to healthcare. At an appointment, they pay you to 50p. It's 50p, but it's it's a free 50p. Um, so we used to um get the food from the kitchen. So we would go to if we, the block was isolated in a different part of the prison. So we would have to go and get the food during the day. So we get escorted by the staff down to the kitchens, get the trolley. The guys in the kitchen knew that we'd be going back to the wing. The guys that worked on our wing, sorry, we got some eggs for you. Put them on the top. This guy's with all the other sandwiches. These trolleys are stacked with boxes and cabinets and there's all sorts of stuff on there. Um, so we disguise a few boxes of eggs in there as well. And we wheel it back to the block, chuck the eggs in the, in the bag or into our coat. And then we would just walk out the block and get escorted back to the wing and we'd, we'd load the wing up with eggs because you're not allowed to buy raw eggs if you haven't got correct cooking facilities. But people do them scrambled egg in the microwave or uh, poached egg in the kettle, whichever they want to do. Uh, but we used to get a lot of food floating around and I got a job working on recycling about a year later um, where we would again go to the kitchens, collect the bins. And the bins would be like the lads would be chucking tins of tuna, tins of whatever, you know, wrapping up packs, wrapping up joints of meat and cling film and chucking them in there. You know, you'd be getting all sorts thrown into those bins. And we'd get back and then just brush it off, <laughs> stick it in your big high-vis jacket and get it back on the wing. You know, so we we're having it pretty good, you know. So sorry if anyone's still doing that. I do apologize if I've ruined your scam. The good times never last. No. You ended up in HMP Oakwood. Yeah, so the weird thing is, HMP Oakwood was private, same as Loudham. So my co-defendant, I kind of moved through this prison sentence with, he went off to Oakwood in 2013. We, we write and he said, you've got to come here. It's amazing. There's a wing called Douglas Wing. So we've got chickens, we've got rabbits outside, we've got everything. So you've got to get on this wing. I thought, sounds all right. He said, we've got fresh eggs from the chickens. You don't have to steal them. I said, right, okay, well, I'm due, due to be downgraded next year in 2014. So I'll head that way. So I got downgraded to Category C in September 2014, jumped on the bus back on the sweat box, and we have not been out of the jail for you know, two years. The first time we could see in the world for a couple of years. Drove across the Midlands to Oakwood, and this place is big, biggest jail in the country. It's At the time, it was 1,600 people, and it's, it's bigger than that now. So it's a big old place, and it is, it's huge. And everyone's been saying all the time, when you're in a Cat B jail, don't rush to get to your cat C. The aim is to get your cat D so you can go home on the home leaves, but you're not getting that to the last couple of years. So don't rush to get in a cat C. You're going to be sat there with people who are, and no disrespect, but people who are a lot of idiots who are doing their time differently, a bit more lively. People aren't as lack of interpersonal skills, you know, communication skills are bad. Don't rush. Before well, I've got five years left. So I'm landing in Oakland, still have five years to go. So I get there straight away, 
you must be undercover. <laughs> People looking at me in this weird way. But luckily, I've got a couple of years prison behind me now. I've got, I got more prop in my trolley than five of these guys who've just come in from court. So I think, well, where's he? He's got an Xbox. He's got his toaster. He's got his quilt and his pillows. Do you think it's your military bearing and how you speak versus like the typical what people imagine a convict looks like and yeah. acts like. Yeah, 100%. And that, that's exactly it. It's, it's how you carry yourself. And, and a lot of guys I speak to now who've done a bit of time, so yeah, they always get labelled as undercover because of how you are. You don't fit that normal criminal profile. You just don't look like someone that's been out breaking the law, you know, which, which ain't a bad thing. Um, so yeah, straight away labelled as undercover, but fortunately... I got Cody on Douglas Wing. He says, "Right, we'll get you over as soon as we can." So I've had to spend a few time on the call of the council estate on the on the normal wings, <laughs> and he got me onto Douglas and landed on there. And you've seen all the people that have come from this P wing or Loudon Grange have filtered down onto this wing because it Douglas was a long termers wing. In the whole jail, it's an isolated wing. It's smaller. It's eighty five guys on there, and it's all long termers in life. It's people doing some long sentences there, and um. I walked on and it was like walking back into a civilized community again, like walking onto P Wing for the first time. There's your cell, Janine and Telly, can I get you anything? Are you okay for it? And like, yeah, there's your dinner. We sorted your dinner out for you. You know, it was totally different. And the ethos on that wing, and I'll go into how that prison was in a bit, but it was something else. You know, I've never known anything like it. And people now, they ask about how that prison is run. They don't believe it because it, it's the number one prison in the country and has been for a, a good two, three years. It's got like, I think it got like four stars in, in the inspection. That's nearly unheard of. It was amazing. So yeah, so I got a job. My first job was um, animal care, looking after the chickens and the rabbits, <laughs> which was amazing because I got that job in, I got on the wing in, I think it's first in the beginning of November, 2014. So it's quite cold, quite miserable, quite wet. But I got this job looking after the rabbits and chickens, which I thought, that's nice. I'm out in a separate enclosure. got the yard is here, the wing's there, and I've got the animal enclosure. So it's like I'm in my own little separate bit. I've got my own shed. I used to take a flask out with a cup of coffee. I sit out there all day and just enjoy the fact that I'm not in what would be considered as normal prison. So that was great. And then the following year in January 2015, I was offered a job as a veterans and custody rep. Was that changed things for me completely? That set me off in a different direction looking after the veterans in custody and there's a lot of us inside in, the, in that jail more than half my friends in Arizona in, in jail were veterans yeah combat PTSD didn't get any help got on street yeah. drugs or self-medicate ended up in prison yeah yeah. yeah. that's that's a, a classic thing there's a lot of guys and again signing the times with, with Afghanistan and, and what's going on over in, in Iraq as well a lot of guys coming out and they're just totally lost in the direction they don't know what's going on um a lot of domestics, a lot of violence, a lot of drinking and substance issues. And, and they're just getting out and doing silly little things and they're just getting put inside. Yeah. You know, so I, I got the job as a rep looking after these guys and, and I started to build that reputation looking after them. And this is where I found out that Oakwood was different because I kind of had the opportunity to do some research about questioning the guys, how did you get in jail? You know, what went so wrong? And, Realize a lot of them had the same problems that I did. That transition, that sense of belonging. We all kind of suffered the same things, all in different categories and different ways, but we all suffered the same basic issues. 
So I spoke to some of the people who got the interventions team, which deal with your sentence planning. What they'll do is when you go in, you'll be given a sentence plan. You need to address certain things, i.e. your offender behavior. Look at you know, what put you in prison. So you might be given a course. If it's violence, it might be anger management. If it's drugs, substance misuse, and so on and so forth. So I asked around some of the staff, so are there any courses available for veterans to, to address our mentality, to address our offender behavior? And they did some research. They said, no, there's nothing on the system. Right, okay. They can I write one then? They said, well, if you want. So I did. I had another job at the time working with probation in the prison. I had access to a laptop. It's part of my job. So I hammered out a course. I wrote a course for veterans, and it's called Project TLS. So what I did is I looked at my transition, or lack of, and I basically sat there and I created, it's 12, but I did 11 modules and I wrote this course basically asking myself a shitload of questions. <laughs> Starting off with, why did I join the army? Why did I leave the army? And I thought this can create a dynamic in a room full of veterans. We can talk to or discuss our experience. So I wrote the course. Wow, and um, well So within, that was finished in April, May 20, no, sorry, June 26th, and I finished writing that. Delivered it to a veteran as a pilot or as a, as a case study. October that year, great results. So I did another four case studies, brilliant results. And a director, the, uh, the governor, gave me permission to deliver a pilot course in 2017. Mm -hmm. He said, right, we're going to give you a room. We're going to, the room will be open on the education room, but you're you, you, down to you, you run it. Tell us how much you need. We'll give you your biscuits and your coffee. We'll give you your flip charts and all the stuff. You need all your stationery with all your printing for you. Deliver your course. So I got five veterans in and did a pilot. And I did that through 2017, delivered like four courses. Not many, but enough to get the research back to see how the dynamic works. Great results all around, showed improvement. So we did a pre, uh, pre and post course report or a, a questionnaire to see if they'd actually learned anything. They did, great results all around. So they said, right, okay, 2018, I want you to deliver that now. So by this time now, I'm starting to go home on home leaves. 2017, I'm, I've been lowered to category D. and I got the option to move to an open prison. But I'm also thinking to myself, if I go there, I'm not going to deliver this course. Mm. I'm not I'm going to lose that momentum. So the director said, look, I, there was a situation, in fact, I'll go back slightly, 2016, um, prior to me getting loads of cat D, my dad had, had a phone call from me, uh, or sorry, I rang my wife. I said, oh, are you, um, you okay? I said, yeah. I said, are you sat down? I went, oh God, please say it's not the kids. I said, it's your dad. Said, is he alive? Yeah, he's alive. Okay, he's alive. What's happened? He's been in an accident. So it taught me through it. So basically what's happened is my dad's up this ladder trimming his um, bushes or his neighbor's bushes because they've, they've encroached onto his property. <laughs> so he's, he's chopping them down. He's up this ladder and um, he's had a fall. He's landed on the shears, put him through his neck. Oh! And uh, he's done the... the um, the carotid carotid artery or the jugular, he's done it. He's oh, bleeding fuck. out. So what's happened is he's clearly unable to shout to my stepmom, bleeding out. She comes out and finds him dead on the floor. I mean, he's he come through it. Blood everywhere. So she's trying to arrest what's bleeding there is. She's trying to ring the ambulance with blood on her hands. The phones aren't working. She gets the ambulance out there. They come back, they pump some fluids into him. They revive him, bring him around, get him into the hospital. So we're unaware of the full details of this. So I'm just, my wife just said, 
yeah, he's fucked. <laughs> In a word, he's fucked. So I said, all right, okay. He's alive, yeah? He's alive. Yeah, he's alive, but he's not good. Right, okay, all right, all right thank you. So I spent that night thinking, oh, God, yeah, is he going to live or die? And it's inevitable. You, you spend that much time away, you think you're going to lose someone. I lost me now. I lost me auntie, lost me uncle in that time. Never got to say goodbye to any of them. And that's sad. But my dad, God, I felt guilty. That I didn't think, I felt guilty because I thought, at least it's not my kids, you know, because that does happen. So anyway, um, the next day goes by, me, me, me bringing my wife every hour, any updates or no, no, no change yet. He's still in, he's still in the, the, the intensive care. Um, and then I rang on the Thursday. They said, taking him into surgery to, to, to relieve the pressure on his brain because of the internal bleeding because he's had a fall and he's damaged his, his head. Right, okay. So Friday morning, I rang up and uh, I said, how are we getting on? She said, you better sit down. I said, what's up? I said, we've been told he's probably not going to make it. I said, oh, right, okay. And that's, that's bad, isn't it? He said, yeah. He said, he's, he's, it's unlikely he's going to pull through. They've had to do a partial lobotomy and remove a section of his brain. And including that as part of the skull has gone. Wasn't aware of that at the time. So I said, right, okay. So I've gone to the wings. I said, I think my dad's going to die. Okay, well, we'll, we'll set the most set the walls in motion, get in touch with chaplaincy, not as a religious thing, but they're the ones which authorize you to be taken out as an end of life visit. So I see my mates, oh, yeah, my dad's going to die, trying to style that out, but I'm in bits. I'm really, really bad. And um, chaplaincy turn up. It's all very sort of like, are you going to be okay? I said, well, you know, it's, I, I'd, by this time, I'd, Boxed off my emotions years ago with my kids because I, squaddies do it. When you go on operational tour, you can't compartmentalize your emotions. You you don't allow yourself to feel anything. I'd done that a long time ago after I had a visit with my youngest and he was really upset. I was just sort of like, oh, I'm not going to go through that again. So I boxed everything off. So really, it was emotionally, I was quite strong or lack of emotion would be the word to use. And um, so yeah, I was trying to get my head around the fact that was, my dad was going to die. And then the Saturday morning, they came and got me. And so we're taking you out. So what, I'm going to get to go out? He said, yeah, we're, we're taking you out in cuffs. I'm going to see you there and see your dad. I was like, wow. So I kind of ring my wife. I said, not officially, but ring her up and tell her you're going to, when you're going to be there. But you shouldn't be doing it. But Because they take your phone out of your cell. You can use your PIN number on someone else's phone. So I rang up from a mate's phone. I said, look, you know, I'm coming, coming back to see dad. Make sure you're at the hospital with the kids. So they took me back in the car. I was cuffed up cuffed to the staff but I was going out first time out of jail in a car first time back to Bristol since 2013 since Poca so this is like six years later or no sorry some five years later um, or three years later whatever it was but anyway it was years later and um, it's weird arriving back in Bristol because everything had changed you go on holiday for a, m a week and it's changed they've moved they've built a house or something on the drive haven't they so yeah, everything's different and the hospital's brand new I'm walking through. I didn't care that people were staring at me. I yeah. didn't care because I was just going to see my dad. And I uh, got to, I into the intensive care and I uh, walked into the room. My wife just turned up with my kids, big hugs all around, as best as you can when you're cuffed. And um, my dad's led there and he's got his head's really swollen. I walked over there and I thought, oh, shit, this is bad. I'm sort of cuffed. They, they've let me off one of the cuffs now. So I've kind of tethered to one of the officers there, sat on his his left-hand side. I'm looking at him thinking, it's weird. And his, his left side was really cold and he's led down. I squeezed his hand and I said, Dad, can you hear me? He wiggled, wiggled his foot. 
I said, Dad, the things you do to get me out of prison is unreal. We got his foot again. And that was amazing. Because well, guys actually heard me. So um <laughs> Yeah, I told him how I felt. And then Yeah, I said goodbye. Then we left. But I felt amazing because <coughs> excuse me. I had a chance to sort of close the deal a bit. And when I seen him, and I thought over the moon, I was sort of like back going back to jail. I thought it doesn't matter if he dies now because I say goodbye. And it's like closure. And then I got up to jail and I was smiling. I was happy. I thought it's done now. So it, the day goes on around my wife. So how, how is he? So he's still the same. So the next day goes by. How is he now? He seems to have perked up a little bit. <laughs> right, okay. So a few more days passed. We, we'd found that he'd had a stroke. So he had a stroke, and that's why he had the swelling on the brain. It was really bad. And then a few more days go by, and they say, yeah, yeah, he, he seems to have opened his eyes now, and <laughs> I think he's going to be all right. <laughs> I thought, shit, he's going he's gonna to pull through this. What? And he did. He did? Yeah, he pulled through. Holy shit. So I got a free visit, but the beauty of it was, <laughs> um, yeah, he actually got Wow. He, so what they did, they had, he went through a series of operations, and what they had to do, they had removed a large chunk of the brain oh. to reduce the swelling. And they had to do a thing called a, a partial rhinoplasty. They had to put a, a plate because his head, once the swelling had gone down, um, there was a mass cavity. Like you see these gunshot victims where yeah. they've had half their blown off, but you just it's just like there's no structure to the skull. It's like that. So they took me out to see him again, cuffed up. And that's the first time I've seen him since saying goodbye to him. And uh, turned up, and he was—he's got no filter anymore because part of the brain that deals with that is gone. So he's burst out crying. I burst out crying, went and seen him, and he—I was still tethered to an officer. I had a chat with him, and and you know that went really well. And I, I applied for another rotel again, release of temporary lights about for something. It was April, twenty seventeen, and uh, this yeah, we're going to take you out uncuffed this time. We're gonna we're gonna take you out with your offender supervisor to see your dad. He just had the operation now to put the plate in his head. We'll take you down to see him. So he took me out uncuffed, and they basically dropped me off at the hospital. I said, "Right, go see your dad. We're back in an hour." And I was like, "What do you mean? You didn't tell me this part. This wasn't part of the script." And they said, "Um, they said, yeah, yeah, we'll we, we, we trust you'll be back here again." <laughs> I said, "Yeah, I don't worry about that." I, said, I couldn't believe it. So they just dropped me off at this. He was in like a like a halfway house between hospital and residential. So he let me off the cuffs and I wandered off. My wife was there with my kids and I said, like that, and they couldn't believe it. Wow. So I spent an hour with my dad, then back to prison again. Then, he, then that next day, they lowered me to category D. So that brings me to the point where the choice was given then, do you want to go to open conditions or stay in Oakwood and do your course? So the director said they were beginning to introduce open prison conditions in that cat C, the closed jail, by letting the grant community work outside. So give me a job working in the visiting centre outside the prison. So I was being released every day um, for about two and a half years, from, well, yeah, just over two years, um, working outside Oakwood in the visiting centre. Well, I was coming back in to deliver my course. So I maintained that. I kept doing the course delivery. Um, so because I was being let out of the prison, um, people were beginning to recognise what I was doing with veterans. So they said, well, do you want to come and do a, a talk? I said, where is that? So we're going down to Imjin Barracks in Gloucester. I said, they're aware of what you're doing, of your transition and your, and your story and the difficulties you've faced of your, and the, the, they'd like to hear your journey, but they don't know you're a prisoner. 
I said, right, okay, that's fine. So we turned up to Indian Barracks and I wasn't expecting much. And it's a big conference. It's like a briefing center. It's like, it's like an auditorium. It's huge. And I'm looking and saying, oh my God. And there were a few members of staff and, we're talk and they're talking about how the prison system works, how veterans in custody are affected. And everyone sat there doesn't know I'm a prisoner. And I stood up and they said, oh, we're going to do Rich. He runs veterans in custody in there. I stood up and said, oh, yeah, good afternoon. My name's Rich. And I said, nah, I've been issued two numbers in my life. First one's my military number, blah, blah, blah. Second one's my prison number. <laughs> and it stopped. It went silent. And he looked at me and he thought, I said, yeah, I haven't escaped. Don't worry. And I just told the story about my background, about organized crime and everything that we've heard just now. And it was really well received. And it, and it, was, it was quite powerful. It, it was very, I think, nice to see that the military community not judging you. They kind of see you, they, they know what kind of people join up. They know we're prone to making silly mistakes and taking silly risks. So they're kind of more thankful that I was honest. And that kind of spurred me into then thinking, right, okay, something here, something here. So I did a few more of these. I did some stuff with West Mid's police, did a few speeches with them. I was invited down to Portishead Police Training Centre, the first ever serving prisoner to go into their training centre and tell them about my journey and say, well, this is what's lacking. This is what we need to do. And off the back of that with a, an amazing sergeant called, um, he, I just call him Sergeant Jones, he's an MBE now. That's how good he is. Um, we set up a veterans, um, like a network of police officers who served, who support veterans on the street now. And so that's all come from the stuff that we've been doing in the background. So yeah, I've done a few of those and I was building up for release for July, 2019. And the aim was to go back into Oakwood and continue delivering the course. However, there are other plans afoot with COVID, <laughs> which kind of got in the way a little bit. Man, what an inspirational way to wrap this story up then. What is your life like now? And what happened with your missus? Yeah, so the, I think the difficult thing, I went, I went through a hell of a lot of changes in, inside. Um, I'm still the same person but I'm motivated very differently now. And I think the sad thing is the person that came out of prison that my wife waited for wasn't the person that came out of prison. Uh, someone else came out and I was different. And we sat down and we had a chat last year. We said, look, we, we think it's run its course. We, we were together since 1998, you know, technically last seven years didn't count because I was away, but you know, we were, we were together for a long time. And we said, let's, let's call it a day. Let's move on. Let's let's be good about this because there's going to come a point when it might become less amicable. So we chose to split, which was the best decision for both of us because it allowed me to focus on my work. So it's been really good, apart from the obvious with COVID. Um, Project TLS, which I'm working with now, is I've set up a furniture bank and a food bank where I support veterans. Um, you know, I'm still looking at doing my talking as soon as I'm allowed to do that and get back in the prisons and deliver the course. There's an organisation called SAFA, military charity. They're, they're amazing. They've been going longer than the British Legion. They're amazing. Um, they supported me massively coming out with things I've needed, like a laptop and stuff that you've needed to get yourself on your feet. I train their staff that go into the prisons and support veterans in custody. So I now train their staff and teach them what it's like to go into a prison and what you're going to be confronted with. You know, what kind of people are you going to see? What are their issues? You know, what are you going to be managing? So I train their staff. So that's a good thing. I work with a company called We Like To Move It. 
amazing. They, they've, they've backed me all the way. They give me a job from day one. Flip side of that is we get donated furniture from people we move house to go to a furniture bank to support veterans who need somewhere to live. So there's loads of stuff from doing. Tons of it. Trying to get into colleges and universities, talk about criminology, and people probe me mind a little bit and dig, in, dig a little bit deeper. So there's plenty doing. And I've recently released my book, Charlie Four Kilo, which came out. Slow down. What was the name of the book? Charlie Four Kilo. Charlie. My two the, favorite letters. The number four. Uh, it's actually the word for. Word for and then kilo. Yeah. Oh, and, and your book is published? Yeah, published on Amazon now. Right. We're going to have a link for that in the description box if people want to check that out. I'm sure some will. Um, how hard was it to write a book? It was interesting. It was always plan B because plan A was not to get caught and get a not guilty at court. <laughs> and I thought to myself, if, if I get caught, when I got enough there for a pretty decent book, but it kind of lay dormant for a long time. I just always, it was always toying with it. But when you're inside, you haven't really got the access to write a book. You need to, it's pointless writing it down on paper and then redoing it all again because I'd never read my writing. So while I was on these day releases, I again had access to a laptop. So I thought I'd start, I'd start writing. So I did. Um, and it, was, it was quite cathartic because it was nice. It had moments where it's very difficult because you're kind of like, you re it's obviously based on true events it's not a true story it's based on true events you know it has to be worded in a certain way doesn't it um you're you're remembering things from a long time ago and this book's particularly about a, a period of my life where it's chaos it's bad you know, debts arrest this is prior to the main arrest so this is this was back in like you know prior to 2010 05 sort of time long time ago so it's a really difficult era to go through where my mental health takes a proper bad turn and um but yeah it, it's it, it's all right it was great writing it i just wrote it because i wanted to write it and even think about publishing didn't think about any of that i just thought let's just get this book done and then luckily i came across an agent who said that he can get it done and uh we, he did the whole process from you know, from manuscript to getting it out to amazon so, yeah sweet really interesting journey i gotta do oh it's just one part i've got four i've got to do four parts to that one story because it's too much it's way too much so i've had to, to split so that's part two part one's going to be a prequel next is part three then four then part one will be the last one i do and that's going to be the bit of like how did he end up doing what he did well, we already know now i've given it away but <laughs> when you were leaving the prison then finally yeah the people you've bonded with on the inside because you served so long. Yeah. How does it feel leaving them behind? Horrible. Really weird because I was on a lifer's wing and these guys have been inside for a long time. And I've got two people I'm, there's a loads that I'm really close with and I'm in touch with two of them all the time. And you do get, life catches up, doesn't it? You tend to sort of move on a little bit and you, you should write to more people, but you should email them and you should this. But what with COVID, it's been difficult to try and get in. There's no visits. That's not happening. So I'm in touch with two good friends. And there's another guy I want to get in touch with. Really good. He's a lifer. He's doing a long time. Because you feel bonded for life with people when you've been through certain experiences because they're the only ones who understand it fully, aren't they? Yeah. And, and they're there for you. Like when my dad nearly died, they're there for you. They're, they're your family. They're the, ones that, they're the ones sat in your cell on the end of your bed when you got your head in your hands thinking, what am I going to do? And how's yeah. your dad now? <laughs> He's all right. Yeah. He's WhatsApping. Um, yeah, he's okay. He's he said okay. his filter's gone. Yeah. Does that mean like he'll swear and stuff? Oh, he's terrible. He's, he's <laughs> awful. I can't even say the sort of things he says on really? <laughs> yeah. Like Tourette's? Yeah. Or? Oh, it's worse. Worse honestly. than Tourette's? Yeah. He'll, he'll, 
Yeah. He's well, funny though. He doesn't realize he doesn't realize how funny he is. Yeah. But he's fine. We haven't seen him for a year because of COVID. Yeah. yeah. But he's had COVID as well and he's survived it. Mm -hmm. We thought we've written him off twice in the last the year. Hell? Yeah, he's made of strong stuff. And how does your mum handle him with the salt? With well, the my stepmom's really good. She, yeah. She's fine. She gets to see him as much as she can. Yeah. Um, it is stressful with him. He is he is quite hard work. Mm. But he's under full time care because he's he's not capable of looking after himself. Gotcha. He, he's paralyzed. You know, he's, he's got. He's got one side, mm. but that's his right and there's his phone. That's mm. it. You know, he, he's, mm. yeah, he's okay. Consider them, he should have been dead a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, he's all right. Bloody hell, man. What a story. Um, do you have any idea how long you've been sat there for? Three hours and 40 minutes. No, I don't know. <laughs> three hours, I think, just under three hours. Yeah. yeah. That's not bad. It goes fast, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, yeah. So all the people who are watching this then have been gripped for the last three hours. What would you like to say to them in conclusion? And I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of ex-military or maybe current military guys out there who have perhaps been inspired by what they've heard today. I think it's, I think certainly for the military, it's transition is really difficult. And there's thousands of charities out there for a reason, because we struggle. And I think the main thing is don't let your pride get in the way because if you don't ask for help when you really need it, and that is usually when it things first start going wrong, you can slide so far down a certain path that it's usually too late. And you, once your pride is gone, too many homeless veterans, too many suicides from mental health, um, take the help when you need it. Take it straight away. Don't, don't put it off because it helps there now. Don't feel like there's someone else more deserving because you all deserve it. And for anyone else, I think... Just enjoy your life, but be careful what choices you make. You know, they, we can all have a good time, but just think about your roots you're going to take, your lifestyle choices. Some good life lessons there as well. Some of the people um, I met who perhaps some of the viewers are familiar with their stories, two Tonys was ex-military, Frankie was ex-military, T-Bone, ex-US Marine, and there's just so many soldiers just end up in prison. And the government needs to address the situation. It's, it's, it's ridiculous that people put their lives on the line for the country end up, you know, in an institution like that. It's really sad. Um, and, and the addiction issues that come about with it as well because of the trauma and stuff like that. So absolutely that needs to be addressed. Um, what links would you like us to put below the video? We'll, obviously, we'll put a link for your book. Are you on the socials? Is the way preferred method people can contact you? Yeah, I mean, my website is one of the best ones, charlie4kilo.com. I'm on all the social medias anyway under under the um, Project TLS on Instagram, The Lost Soldier on Instagram. I'm TikToking the hell out of the world at the minute. So I've got People a lot of People say I need to get on TikTok, but what, like, what is this all, all about? Honestly, it's absolutely nuts on there. Is like, it? It's very consuming. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, have to but, delegate it to someone. Yeah. My YouTube Insta's delegated. Is, yeah. Yeah. I need to start thinking about that because it's, it's taking a lot of time up, but it's necessary to get, this is my PR campaign with the book. When I was yeah. on there, I, I went on because I knew I had to try and get awareness out there. Mm -hmm. Most social media, I'm on that. Yeah. yeah. All right. So please go down and um, click on Richie's links. And if you're interested in his book, check it out. Huge thank you to Joe and James for coming out today to film this. And huge thank you to you, the viewers, for supporting the channel. Subscription logo is in the bottom corner down there. And in the description box are all our links, our socials, 
our playlists and our donation links. All right, Rich, give us a hug, man. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, for coming in. That's oh, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, yeah, well done. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic.